This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hour number two of the program. This is the show where we give you the latest, greatest news, information, research to make sure that you can... uh, Live your life. Lead your life. You've got to have the data, the information if you want to make better choices. So we bring it to you. Thanks for being with us. we got a great um, a great lineup today. We'll be talking about how to stop guessing, the nine behaviors of great problem solvers. I don't think I'm a very good problem solver. Well, I mean, maybe I'm a good problem solver. I'm not a great decision maker. I kind of choked on my car purchasing decision. Well— yeah. Out of exhaustion, too. You told me that, and I started to feel sorry for you, and yeah. then you said, oh, it's a lease. Yeah. And then I, I wasn't as sympathetic. Well, but you still have to drive the car. For I'm going to try it for my first 100 days, like President Trump, and then I'm just going to do it 100 days at a time. Okay. I, so I, there is a grace period? No. There is not. No, I'm stuck. But mm. I like it. It's a great car. It's just you got to know how to solve problems and – you know, when you're tired, worn out, and having gone through two or three dealers with a lot of promises. And speaking of dealing, you got to know when to hold them and when to fold them. Right. You got you to know when to walk away. And Maybe. when to run. Yeah. You never know. What's the, how does, you never know. <laughs> you know, there'll be time enough for counting. Don't count your money at the table. That's the, that's the basic rule. Yeah. Uh, we'll be talking about uh, how to be a great problem solver, some basic principles. Plus, also, we've, we've got to get into a crazy story about a man in a bunny suit with an air horn who decided to turn himself into police. And his brother was videotaping it, and it just didn't go well. I'm guessing there's more to this story, though. Do you think? Yeah. I. You know, there's so, we're given a paragraph of details and all of a sudden, we're supposed to pass judgment on these two guys. I think, I think this is appropriate to give them a benefit, the benefit of a doubt. And so we'll do that okay. here in a second. Yeah. We, we've got a, we've got a great goal to help everybody learn to give the benefit of the doubt. So we will give the benefit of the doubt. Well, I will. The bunny you're kind of, you're a little more negative. You're a little quicker to judge. Yeah, I'm a little quicker to judge. I'm a little burnt out. Just mad at dealers, mad at guys in bunny suits. Do you think uh, – was there was there somebody on the corner holding a sign getting yeah. into the dealership the in a bunny I, suit? That's the only reason I went to that dealership <laughs> is because some guy was in a bunny suit. See, they put in the extra effort. It wasn't just one of those waving, you know, air – what are those things called? Air uh, – oh, uh, the wave. You do the wave. Yeah. Is that what you're doing? Or it looks like you're almost having a seizure. Are you okay? <laughs> You were just doing a dance move. Do you think when you drove off the lot, the salesman was like, <laughs> got him. Well, let me just tell you how the whole thing started. I just pulled up to this car lot and um, started walking around looking at cars. And the guy that came up to me, my which became my guy, it was his first day at the lot. Did he tell you that? Yeah. Why? The first thing he said, this is my first day. And in my head, I thought, ah, jeez, and I wanted to run away. Hmm. And But he was hooked to me. And he was a nice gentleman. Don't get me wrong. Very nice. Hmm. But uh, I don't know. I was about 
It's just weird when you're about wa- ready to walk. All I wanted to know was the number. Just give me the number. This is what I want. This is how I want it. Give me the number. Can you hit this number? Sure. Sure. Oh, absolutely we can. Oh, hey, did you read the fine print? And he, I pull up the ad and he goes through the fine print with me. And I'm like, well, yeah, but I thought this and I had misunderstood the fine print because it's so fine that yeah. you misunderstand it. Then you just walk away, right? But, you know, we can do it. Let me let me go talk. Then, oh, then then, then the manager comes out. Ah, yee, what's going to Anyway, all the way, every single time, it was not what I wanted. It was not what I wanted. It was $50 more than I wanted for the lease. It was $100 more than I wanted for the lease. And and then another surprise when you're signing the papers. Huh. Then you walk oh. away, right? Oh, we went, oh you no? oh, oh tax. We forgot to we forgot to tell you how much the tax is going to cost. Oh, and the ink in that pen that you're mm-hmm. using to sign. Uh, are, that's, oh, are you that's sitting? The expensive. Are you ink. sitting there? Okay, we have a sitting charge. Anyway, it's all fine. Whatever. But now I'm mad at the world and anybody <laughs> in a rabbit suit. So everybody, just get away from me. Get away. So we'll get to all that fun. Um, about problem solving as well as the rabbit story. And give the benefit of the doubt. It's got an air horn. Anyway, all that fun straight ahead. But first to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on around the rest of the country? A government shutdown is not what the Trump administration wants. Office Management and Budget Director Rick Mulvaney told Chris Wallace in a conversation on Fox News Sunday. A shutdown will occur on Friday, April 28th if Congress cannot pass a spending package by that date. President Trump has talked about a number of items that he would like to see in the government funding bill, Wallace asked, alluding to the White House Thursday demand that any spending package include money for Trump's southern border wall, which are uh, so important that he's willing to see the government shut down if he doesn't get them. I don't think anyone's trying to get to a shutdown, Mulvaney replied. Shutdown is not a desired end. It's not a tool. It is something that we want to have or, or... It's not something we want to have. Still, he added, the White House wants our priorities funded. And one of the biggest priorities during the campaign was the border security and and the border wall, keeping Americans safe. And that's all part of the deal. So Hmm. it is, but it isn't. They want the shutdown, but not necessarily. So we'll see what happens. President Donald Trump's tax proposal proposal we released on Wednesday will include new tax rates, but those will mostly be generalities for Congress to consider, the White House budget director said Sunday. Speaking on Fox News Sunday, Mulvaney, the office management and budget director, said specifics about what tax cuts will be proposed are still being determined. He said the announcement will include guidance, principles, and also some indication of what the rates are going to be. So maybe more Hmm. of a bullet point presentation than you're going to pay this much if you make this much type of Detail. Okay. Yeah. Okay. More of I. They said more targets okay. that the Trump administration is looking for, and you just kind of give that to Congress, and then they figure out how to meet the target. Oh, uh, okay. Kind of so, like a car dealership. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. We'll, we'll get you there. We'll get you the money we want you to pay. A University of California San Diego professor says he has developed an axi- an acne vaccine. Oh wow! That can help take care of the disease. He goes, it's the first vaccine for human beauty. This is Professor Eric Huang of the Department of Dermatology at UC San Diego. He goes, I think this vaccine has a huge market in the whole world. Uh, Acne is caused by an overgrowth of specific bacteria. And when the bacteria releases a toxin, it causes inflammation. 
The human body can't neutralize this factor on its own, but the vaccine can. It doesn't kill the bacteria. The vaccine neutralizes the bacteria, which everybody has. After five years of work, there are two types of vaccine, therapeutic and preventative, which will be given to children in elementary school. The vaccine has been tested on mice and worked well, and now he needs to team up with a pharmaceutical company for large-scale trials. But if that happens, the FDA approval, all that whole process, the vaccine could be available with three, in three to five years. Holy cow. They could fix acne, which is a big problem for so people. So we, we can totally. eat more chocolate now. Yeah. No. And I think those aren't related. Acne gives you, or chocolate gives you acne. Acne gives you chocolate. I don't think yes. so. <laughs> I think if you talk to a dermatologist, they would say, well, only if you're rubbing it in your pores. Which, you know, there was that guy <laughs> that took a bath in it. That's true. Now that would give you acne. And finally, McCain Foods, which you... Uh, from what I can tell, sells their product on the East Coast and the South, that area. The, yeah. They are recalling frozen hash browns from stores in nine states because the potatoes may have been, quote, contaminated with extraneous golf ball materials. Wow. Yeah. How did a golf ball get in there? Multiple golf balls. Oh, really? Yeah. Not sure how. This is on the Associated Press. The recall notice said the golf balls apparently were inadvertently harvested with potatoes used to make this product. They were Mm. chopped up. Consumption of these products may pose a choking hazard or other physical injuries to the mouth. This is all part of the recall. No injuries have been reported or explanation of how the golf balls were, quote, harvested with the potatoes. My potatoes are chewy. You know, just squirt some extra ketchup on there. You could choke it Timmy, down. Timmy, eat your potatoes. I can't. They hurt my jaw. My wife was speculating some some kid in Idaho just standing yeah. outside his dad's potato farm. Hitting and you golf just, balls. You know, lining up and just driving just golf balls out there. Just get a bucket of range balls. Didn't bother to pick them up. And dad came by and just plowed them under. Dad. So they all got mixed in. Yeah, now look. They have to recall hash, all of the hash frozen browns. Frozen hash browns. Oh, boy. Because there's golf balls in them. Somebody's getting in trouble. Hey, um, good stuff. Thank you, Terry. Um, Interesting little uh, event in New Jersey. A police officer apparently – well, it's a long story. A guy was turning himself in wearing a bunny costume Mm. and blowing an air horn. Yeah. And his buddy was filming the entire thing probably for YouTube. Mm. And they thought it would be just really funny. Sure. And so sounds funny. You get into the police station to charge to to turn himself in, and um, he's blowing his air horn, right? Just laughing and turning to the camera, and they're just all laugh. It's just laughter, tons of laughter. Cops love this, by right? The way. And then police officer Nicholas Maresca Jr. comes out, and uh, he slaps Kevin Hemmerich on um, just kind of like in the head. Okay, hits him like and aggressively gets in his face, and he's wearing his leather gloves, so you know, yeah. He's going to be, you know, removing the perp from the premises, the premises yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and putting him in jail, uh, I guess. But Moreskis now is facing uh, the officer. I mean, is facing simple assault charges and being charged with slapping Kevin Hemmerich. Um, he his attorney says he acted appropriately in accordance with his training and experience. We are confident that Officer Moreska will be vindicated of the one charge against him when this case is addressed in a court of law. The video shot by Hemrick's brother shows Hemrick entering the police station, wearing the bunny suit, blowing an air horn repeatedly, despite being told to stop. So you're not listening to the officers. Brother uh, Jason uh, Hemrick says two officers began yelling at him. One hit Kevin in the face. 
He says the brother was turning himself in on a warrant related to a motor vehicle accident. See, I think the boys thought they were just going to have fun with this. Yeah. But when you walk into a police station, you know, they're not there to have fun. Turn turn off your – so – I think you're a little too quick to judge them. See, and again, this is this is the this is something we 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 want to talk about here, Jeffrey. And Jeff thinks I'm quick to judge that you just you don't go in there a wearing a bunny suit. B, you don't go in there with a blowhorn. Mm. Did it ever occur to you that this happened on Easter and that he was just being festive? It was in November. It was in November, so uh, it it didn't occur to me to okay. to, to equate it to Easter. Well, in November. What if it was laundry day and that was the only piece of clothing that he could find to okay. don? That, that, that's great. And so if, if that were the case, um, what's, what's with the air horn? Well, I, I, what if this man has been known to have a, a quiet voice? You know those low talkers? Yeah. You really cannot hear a word they're saying? Yeah, I do. I do. Yeah. So maybe he's a low talker. Yeah, but, but again, when he's told to stop blowing the horn. Well, I think he's he also should... hard of hearing. Oh, so maybe it's because he has an air horn that he keeps blowing. What? Oh, yeah. There's an update to the story. What? The man in the bunny suit Yeah, went to court over all this. He has pled uh, guilty to dis- disorderly conduct. This happened last week. He- he'll pay a $500 fine. Okay. The uh, judge also ordered the police officer charged with striking the man in the bunny suit to stand trial July 6th. Oh, boy. For assault. Yeah. Um, he was in that, uh, what he has pled not guilty to the charge, the police officer pled not guilty to the charge of simple assault and harassment. More than 50 officers went to court to support him. Really? Like, they're all saying, I would have hit the bunny, too. <laughs> so I think he was clearly intimidated into pleading guilty. Which? The bunny suit guy. Oh. He was slapped in the face, first of all, and then being in a room of... 50 officers, one of which slapped you in the face, that would be intimidating. I'd plead guilty. Yeah. And also another thing, simple assault. Yeah. This is not this is not a simple assault. Can you imagine the paperwork on this one? <laughs> bunny suit, air horn. Yeah. Why did so why'd you hit the guy? Well, he was wearing a bunny suit. I had to hit him. <laughs> and in defense of the officer, maybe he's afraid of bunnies. Have you ever seen a bunny that's six feet tall? It seems like you're that complicating. That would be terrifying. It seems like you're complicating this. It's If I'm a betting man, the guy was maybe a little inebriated. Turning mm. himself in, he thought, I dress up like a bunny, that would make it easier. But I don't think walking into a jail cell with a bunny outfit on is going to help anybody. I think, I think you're asking for problems. And maybe this guy figured, well, if I'm dressed in a bunny outfit, none of the other prisoners are going to give me any trouble. They're going to stay far away from me. Oh, really? Like you're a, you're a rabid bunny? Yeah, maybe. And again, six-foot-tall bunny? That's scary. I think it has more to do with the Energizer thing. He just, he just... And if you watch that video, yeah. he just kept going and going and going. Yeah, he did. Anywho, always try to give the benefit of the doubt, even if it's to a guy in a bunny suit. And if you're a police officer, you gotta you gotta have the upper hand. Actually, that's not good. We'll take a break, folks. When we come back, we'll be talking about how to stop guessing the nine behaviors of great problem solvers. Stick with this. This is the Matt Townsend Show. 
When the challenging problems go unsolved in our lives, they can make us suffer in ways that we might not even recognize. We solve countless simple problems on a daily basis, sometimes unconsciously. However, there are different levels of difficulty to the practical problems of life. Simple problems are easily solved by step-by-step methods, right? Or just guessing. You can just flat out guess how to solve it. But the harder problems can't be solved the same way. So instead of throwing all of our research time and money at the hard problems, there are several behaviors that can uh, develop to become to help us all become better problem solvers. Our guest today, Nat Green, is here to share some ways that we can stop guessing and go solve some real problems. Nat, thank you so much for being with us today. You're welcome. I'm looking forward to it. Now, tell me, Nat, how did you get involved in this idea of uh, you know behavior or problem solving? And why, of all the topics you could cover, why problem solving? Well, um, problem solving has such an impact in the world and, and on people. And, and I, I've spent my whole life fascinated by it. And I'm highly attuned to seeing the problems that exist around us um, in business, you know, in our personal lives, in our local communities. And so my attention is always drawn to them. And, you know, as I've been trying to think how I can have broader impact and sort of make my mark and help people, um, you know, I figured that finding a way to spread the message about how people can become much more effective problem solvers was a great starting point. And you talk about, you actually distinguish, I mean, there's easy problems. We can just, you know, guess, figure it out, try, try, try till we figure it out. But it's the harder problems that, uh, that really take a different skill set. How, how do you distinguish when it's time to, to just quit guessing? Um, well, I, I think it's time to quit guessing almost immediately. In fact, as soon as you have that thought, it's probably already too late. You should already stop guessing because we're so wired to guess um, that, that all our efforts need to be you know, placed on, on not guessing. And, and with simple problems, you know, as you say, we, we try a few things really quickly. There's not very many options. Uh, and guessing, you know, we can very quickly have a few ideas and try something. I mean, the example that that, uh, you know, I've been using recently is, is, is say I tell you that a, a picture falls off the wall. Okay, you hear it drop to the ground right. in the other room. Uh, immediately, you've, you've thought why, right? You've got a guess that's come into your mind. It's sort of instinctual. And in reality, there's only one or two things that could have happened. I mean, uh, you know, the nail that it's hung on came loose, the string and the back snapped, or somebody bumped it uh, and knocked it off. You know, there's, there's very limited choices. So, so those sorts of problems we're used to solving with that kind of mental approach. And when I'm talking about hard problems, I'm talking about problems that have already resisted those efforts. People have already had a go, um, or they've been around a long time. Uh, and typically, they're characterized by being a problem with many, many possible root causes. And you're never going to be able to guess. They might have a thousand things that could make them happen. And, and the chances of you figuring it out by guessing are so slim that you should just stop that as a strategy. Is it so when you talk about these problems because it's one thing to have the a very tangible like picture falling off of our or a painting or whatever falling off of our wall um but it almost seems like some of our biggest problems are the are kind of just complex relationship human with multiple complexity multiple people involved it, it seems like some of them are too hard to sort out or is that just my mind trying to, you know, not have to deal with it? Well, I mean, they may be, right? I mean, I, I can't talk to every problem and every problem that every in, individual faces. And I, I would never try and make a blanket statement that every problem can be solved. Um, presumably, there's sort of this frontier of problems. And with your current problem-solving capability, 
you, you know, you find that frontier and, and you tend to, we all tend to sort of give up at a certain point and decide that something's too hard. And the only thing I propose is if you look around and you look at the people who you respect for being very good problem solvers and you understand what they do, is it possible for you to improve your problem solving skills sufficiently that you can push that frontier out a bit? I'm not saying you can go all the way and solve every problem you ever face, but you know, if you could take the next step and take a bite out of the next chunk of challenges that you face, you know, what could you do for your community and yourself and your family and, and so on? Oh, yeah. And, and maybe it is, you know, maybe so many of us are, are we just give up too easily, too. We, we don't because we don't possess these skills. It seems like this is something we need to learn instead of, you know, just moving the problem on to the next person. Yeah, and, and I think it's a natural state. Um, I don't think people are taught very well how to solve problems. Right. Uh, I don't think they're taught well at school, and I don't think society and our, our sort of a lot of the dynamics in our workplaces um, cultivate the behaviors that are needed to solve hard problems. Um, and so I don't, you know, when, when we, even when we say the word give up, I mean, I use that word, but, but you know, I don't actually like it because it sounds quite negative and it sounds like we're blaming the individual. I, I think it's more a question of, you know, when you reach a point where you don't know how to go further, you know, and you don't have the skills, you don't have the support, then the only thing you can do is pause on that effort. You can't keep bashing your head against the right. wall if you don't know how to go around it. So, um, yeah, I think there's tremendous opportunity for people to um, find ways so that they don't have to feel like they have to give up on some of these problems. What would be an example? Because I also believe many people, they don't even know they have a problem, but they it, the, the, it keeps rearing its head every Every season, every quarter, every whatever, what are some signs that you might be stuck in a problem-solving cycle and you're stuck? Yeah, or, or, or a not problem-solving yeah, cycle. Yeah, <laughs> the absence of solving the problem, yeah. Yeah, ab- absolutely. I mean, I, I think um, when you start to tell yourself that um, it's not actually possible, that you've, um, you know, you've solved uh, – sorry, you've worked at solving the problem – and you now believe that it's not even a problem. It's just a way it is. And, of course, it happens in people's personal lives, in their marriage. You know, people get to a point, they go, well, this can just never work. Well, you know, I, I, obviously there are some situations where that's the case. But, but in a lot of cases, it's like if you step back and you go, well, is that really the case? Can it not theoretically work? You know, how did you get to this point in the first place? There must have been good, good moments and good things, and there must have been compatibility and shared mission and, and this sort of thing. And so, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm not an expert on marriage or marriage counseling, but, but, you know, a marriage is a lot of things that, uh, you know, there's a lot of issues that arise in, in your own and in your friends' marriages and things. And, and I think at points people give up. And, w- and once you have reached that barrier where you think you need, you know, that there's no solution, then, then you probably have a hard problem there mm. and one that you may or may not be able to solve. And, and I guess, I mean, so again, if, if, if you don't even know that it could be better, I mean, some people have just gotten used to the result, right? And they didn't even know it's no longer a problem because, you know, they've just adjusted to it. Oh, yeah. I mean, we're very good at developing coping mechanisms. Um, in, you know, in our personal life, we just accept things and we accept the way it is. It's, it's like a rock in your shoe and, you know, it's, it's a pain for the first few steps. But if you don't clear it out, you know, your body adjusts and you become used to it. Uh, and in business, there's a lot of coping mechanisms. I mean, people can't solve, say, production processes, and so they, um, you know, they buy a new, they build a new factory or something. Right. Um, they they have problems with their delivery schedule, so they hire more drivers to deliver a product instead of solving the problem. There's a lot of workarounds, which which is why a lot of businesses ultimately their margin ends up being whatever is needed to survive. 
um, because they keep avoiding solving the hard problems in their business um, by throwing money at it until their margin can't cope. Mm. Um, yeah. and, and we hire, and that's the thing too, is there's a lot of really competitive consultants telling you that they're, they've got the solution to your problem. And, and, and so then if you don't know how to go through your own problem solving, you know, pat or, you know, approach, then you might just automatically trust everyone else to solve the problem. Yeah. And it's, it is an interesting point because there are obviously some very good problem solvers who can help you solve a problem um, or can help guide you or help your uh, team do that. Um, but there's a difference between when you talk about consultants or outside people, and, th- and those outside people could be from a larger corporation that you're part of or a broader communi- yeah, community. You know, whenever we um, give up responsibility for solving a problem, we've got to be very careful that those people are actually great problem solvers. Because mm. uh, if, if, if they're not, you're just, um, you know, handing over the keys to your future to somebody who may or may not be a good problem solver. And, and um, people often confuse experience and expertise with great problem solving, and, and they're not the same thing. And that's the difference is, too, we, you're the one that possesses a lot of the information. So you may as well, instead of just handing it over, all I mean, you may eventually need a professional to do something. But I guess what you're saying, though, is learn the behaviors of a great problem solver first, and then you can make those decisions what you do next. Well, it's certainly going to help. And, and it depends on how pressing things are. You know, if you, if you learn how to be a great problem solver early on, then when, you know, a crisis arises, you can um, be at the center of that and at least steer it. You know, you might not have the time, you, you know, if you're in a corporate role, you might not have the time to personally go and manage solving some of these uh, critical problems. You know, your role is to deploy resource to them. But you've got to make sure you understand what's going on and how to guide people and how to know when they're taking the right steps or not uh, and what questions to ask them to get the most out of them. Uh, and I think that's the, the important thing. So always, you know, the, more, the better you can be before the critical moment arises, it's always going to help you. And, and of course, hopefully you'll avoid a bunch of crises by solving you know, these hard problems in a timely manner and, and giving yourself more options. Mm. Talk about the behaviors. Now, you write down in the book, um, stop guessing the nine behaviors of great problem solvers. You identify, I, I guess, nine behaviors. So nine approaches, nine, nine, um, nine actions, nine activities that great problem solvers do. Let's start. Let's get into some of those. What, what are some of the things that, that good problem solvers do versus those that aren't so good at solving problems? Well, no surprise, I called the book Stop Guessing, and we've already talked about guessing and the need to stop guessing. The, the first behavior and the most critical one is to stop guessing. You know, and, and we, we cover up guessing with so many different lovely words, right? Because it's, you know, it's not very polite to say to someone, well, you're just guessing. I mean, it, it can be you know, kind of challenging. And so you know, we, we do other things. We call it brainstorming, for instance, right. uh, which I call group guessing, um, <laughs> which is just a bunch of people having you know, wild guesses about something. You're very unlikely to drive progress. And, and recent research shows that it's not even particularly good for creativity because you very quickly get groupthink. Um, and, you know, a couple of people have an idea and their idea dominates and, and, it, and it reduces creativity. Hmm. So, you know, brainstorming is a problem. Um, people have hypotheses and ideas and, you know, there's lots of words they use. So the first thing you've got to do is stop guessing. And then, and then the next eight problems, uh, the, the next eight um, behaviors are all about what to do once you stop guessing. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's a number of them. I mean, you know, the, the first one, uh, you know, in the list sort of thing is, is to smell the problem. And it's, it's make sure that you get in there and you focus on the problem, not the solution. So many people are solution-centric when they face a problem. They're, they spend all their time 
trying to think of a solution. And of course, if you don't know the problem that you're trying to solve, uh, you know, any solution might fit. I mean, mm. it's sort of like shooting in the dark. So, so you've got to get in there, smell the problem, use all your senses and really understand what's going on, when the problem's happening, you know, what do you observe? And, and, and the key there is to, you know, guessing will creep back in, you know, because we, we do it all the time. We, we guess at a solution and it pollutes us and we try to look for data that backs up uh, you know, that validates that, you know, with confirmation bias and so on. Uh, and, and it's tremendously destructive in the problem-solving effort. Oh, that's so true. Yeah, and, th- yeah, and then you're, you're only looking for data to support your hypothesis. And meanwhile, your, your business loses, you know, more market share or whatever. Um, so you, you got to get in, smell the problem, I guess, get your hands dirty, get in and, and make sure you're actually assessing all of the data. Yeah, you, I mean, it's very difficult to solve a hard problem. Um, you know, while you're sat in a chair in your office. Um, you know, it's unlikely that it's going to come to you. If, if it would, you'd already have solved it. You've got yeah. to get out there now. Now, that might mean out there into operations, out there in your community, um, or it might mean out there by digging into your computer system. You know, but certainly sat there dreaming about stuff is, isn't, going to, isn't going to get you there. You're going to have to go and find out the data that is, is really causing um, this problem. Well, and, and in a way, um, and oh, how do you say this? Quit talking to the experts that can't that haven't solved your problem either. I mean you you hire people, you hire consultants, you hire whatever to come in and help you and if the problem's still not changing um then it seems like maybe you're not being clear about how where you're ignorant. I mean there's there's obviously a blind spot somewhere. So I know one of your points is to embrace your ignorance. Talk about that. Yeah, the 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 thing you need to understand is it's not what you know that's holding you back from solving this hard problem. It's what you don't know. And so until you embrace your ignorance and you admit that you just don't know what's going on, um, then it's, um, you know, it's going to be very hard for you to progress, which is one of the reasons why people, you know, people who like problem solving will all be familiar with the idea of you know, a fresh set of eyes. You get fresh eyes in. And one of the good things about that is people aren't held up by their, their bias, you know, their previously held biases. So, you know, fresh eyes are good. But also, when you get somebody involved who's a great problem solver, but isn't um, an expert in your particular system or your business or you know, whatever, whatever's going on there, when they aren't, they can ask all kinds of stupid questions. And you'd be amazed at how many people um, are in an industry and even experts in industry. And when you really push them for what something means or a definition they use, they don't actually know. They become so used to it. Uh, and I was reminded of this recently, um, you know, with the, the previous election uh, cycle and, you know, not to get political, uh, particularly it's, it's that when people were looking at the Electoral College and there was a lot of discussion of, uh, ooh, what could happen and, and how could you, you know, block Trump from becoming president for people who were um, keen to do that. Um, you know, the funny thing is, is there are a lot of people who know a lot about politics, but it turned out they didn't really know how the Electoral College works. And right. it's a lot more complicated than we thought. But plenty of people figured they did. And really, it takes someone to go, well, hang on, how could that work? And is that true for every state? And, and then you realize it's, it's, you know, maybe where people feel they're experts, there's actually a lot they don't know. Oh, it's so true. It is so true. And, and, and yet we, we keep talking as if we know. But there's something about once you embrace your ignorance, it does create this kind of this almost this humility where it almost turns on the listening again, the learning. Yeah, it's, it's a wonderful thing to not know what's going on um, and to be able to explain that openly without fear. And, and it's difficult in a lot of situations because people are not used to it. And, um, 
people spend a lot of time, especially experts, covering up and maintaining a facade mm-hmm. that they know everything that's going on. And so it's difficult to initiate. And, and in a business, it can be difficult to initiate um, because people don't necessarily feel safe with it. Mm. Well, and, and their job is hanging on this, they think. But your job should really be hanging on your ability to solve the problem, not to know everything that's going on. Let's take a break. We're speaking with Nat Green, author of the book Stop Guessing, The Nine Behaviors of Great Problem Solvers. When we come back, we'll continue discussing the behaviors, hopefully give you some more tools to uh, to actually solve the problems in your life. Stick with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. On the line with us is Nat Green, uh, author of the book Stop Guessing, The Nine Behaviors of Great Problem Solvers. And he's he's just coaching us up, giving us the tools we need to be able to solve the problems of our lives. And it's not always it's not always an easy thing to even see the problems, is it, Nat? No, it can be uh, it can be very challenging to recognize them. Is it? I guess because. You're also so in it. Um, I mean, I run my own business, and you, I can see what our, I can see where we just need to solve some problems. But then you get in, and there's just too much history. There's there's so many things that cloud it up. So my my inclination tends to be, well, let's get an expert in here. Um, but talk to us, talk to us about you know before we bring the experts in to fix it. Um, they're still not, they don't have the expertise I do. So what are some other things we should do to help solve this problem? What are some of the other, you know, behaviors of problem solvers? Well, an expert, the use of experts is interesting. I think before you utilize an expert, you've got to understand how you're going to get the most out of them. And so the behavior that that we list um, in the book is, is don't rely on experts. It's not don't utilize them or don't talk to them or it doesn't say they're not, they're not helpful. They can be tremendously helpful at pointing you to certain knowledge you don't know, uh, helping you step back and reassess things, um, and maybe helping you understand what, what you could do, what, you, what your process, your business could be capable of. They can be very helpful there. Um, but the thing is, is, is you can't rely on them to solve your problem because they might be an expert in a particular part of things, but you're the expert on your business. Mm. And you have access to data that they don't, and you have an alignment uh, with your business needs that they don't. Um, you also have a time frame that's typically much longer. So, so you know, when it comes to uh, experts, unfortunately what people do is they often um, just hand things over to them. Uh, and so before you even bring them in at all, I'd say make sure you know what you're going to do with them. And I love that idea that, I mean, if you need them, utilize them. But in the end, it's still my business, and it's 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 my responsibility to know what's going on to make these decisions um, instead of just almost abdicating my responsibility to them and assuming or hoping that they'll fix it. Yeah, and and time and time again, I mean, I've I've spent the last twenty years working with large industrial corporations, uh, you know, mostly in the United States myself, but yeah. some of my colleagues in Europe and elsewhere, and. Time and time again, I see a situation where there's a problem, and I don't know, I'll choose, I've done a lot of work in food and beverage, so maybe you've got a filling machine that isn't filling right, or a packaging machine that isn't sealing the product uh, correctly. And what people will do is, which expert do you think they'll call in? 
the the packaging expert. Great. Yeah. So they'll typically call the people who sold them the piece of equipment. Right. And, exactly. You know, maybe one of their experts will come in to tweak it and so on. And the issue there is that they don't necessarily know how to operate that equipment best in your environment. Number True. one. Yeah. And number two is they're not necessarily aligned with you. So all the time I see um, a situation where you end up with a dynamic where there's a proposal on the table to buy the latest piece of equipment and you know, spend money and often an expensive, um, disruptive decision rather than to get what, what is already there uh, working better. Because the, the person that the OEM, you know, the original equipment manufacturer sends in, um, isn't necessarily a great problem solver, isn't necessarily able to solve your problem, um, but they do know how to um, you know, help you buy a new piece of equipment. Yeah, upsell. Which love to do. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's so true. And, and yeah, and you may, one reason it's not working, if you kind of had a more neutral advisor, um, they might be able to say, you don't even need that machine. I mean, honestly, if we just did this here and this here, you'd cut this process out. And so so I guess that's one of the reasons to, if you need to use experts, use them, but just don't rely so heavily on them. Um, when you also talk about it, and this kind of gets into Occam's razor and some pretty powerful ideas about simplicity, a lot of times we seem to choose the most complex solution, but you talk about uh, look for the simple solution and believe in it. Yes. Uh, I mean, hope's a wonderful thing. And if you enter into a situation expecting things to be complicated and difficult, that's what you're going to find. Obviously, there's the great Henry Ford quote um, about uh, if you think a thing can be done or you think it can't, um, you're right. Mm. Uh, and there's like it's quoted about 10 different ways online. So, uh, you know, don't kill me if I got the quote slightly wrong. But the the yeah, the thing is, is believing in a simple situation is critical. And I've, um, I talk about in the book one particular story I was involved in uh, as a very young consultant. And I was working in a large, large um, paper um, factory, paper mill. And we had this one packaging um, sort of line, and it was causing big problems in their supply chain. They were um, having to put some very large uh, national retailers on um, consign- uh, sorry, on um, allocation uh, because they couldn't supply them with the product that they were making, which, you know, it's a great business problem. If you have a right. business problem, you want it to be that your customers want more of what you can produce than you can produce. It's much better than the other side of the coin. But it's still nevertheless very disruptive. And I ended up being able to increase capacity on this production line uh, in a few days uh, by more than 30%, so solving their allocation problem, by removing one loose bolt from one piece of equipment. <laughs> and and the, thing, the thing is, think about that, a lot of the ways people try problem solve, they get people in a room or they're lying there you know, late at night and have a eureka moment. Who was going to wake up one morning and go, I know, there must be a loose bolt in one of the pieces of equipment that's, that's stopping this, causing all this trouble. I mean, people would laugh you out the room. Right. You could have a thousand people in a, the biggest brainstorming session in the world, and that idea could be brought up, and it would never be considered. Um, and so, if, but once you solve some of these com, you know, complicated problems with a simple, elegant solution, and you start to believe that that is possible, you're not going to find a simple, elegant solution for everything, but you'll look at problems in a different way. So true. Yeah. And, and again, we, we like the complexity. And I guess because we think it's we think some things are so complex, except some things are just a loose bolt. Well, a simple solution is very dangerous politically in a corporation. So in, in this case, can you imagine someone going to the board? I mean, this was a public company. Can you imagine them going to the board and saying, hey, you know, we've had this disruption. 
with some of our biggest uh, customers. And this product launch that was wonderful, but you know, there's been these hiccups. Can you imagine explaining to them that, that the problem was we had a loose bolt? I mean, it, you know, they're not trained no. to look at it that way. They, they, what people want is they want a complex solution. If it's a hard problem, they want a complex solution. Otherwise, they, they feel a little silly. And, that, and that's, that's one of the behaviors we've got to stamp out across the board. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's great advice. And then uh, just another point you bring up or another behavior is the ability to stay on target. It seems like we're so easily distracted, and I guess it depends on every business and every situation, but staying on target might be the hardest thing. Oh, I agree with you. I mean, yesterday I was uh, helping um, you know, my wife and the kids. We were trying to sort out some of our books because yeah, as the kids get older, we've got some early early reading books and things like that. And, and you know, there's, there's too many books. We need some space on the shelf to make room for sort of age-appropriate books for the kids as they get older. And so we're sorting through them and clearing some things out. And, and uh, my wife, um, you know, needs another box. I go up into the attic to get a box to, you know, put some books in that we're going to donate. And, of course, what do I find? I, I find some, another job to do, <laughs> you know, and I start doing that job. So I pull down some thing. I start sorting some photos. And, of course, she's looking at me like, what, what's going on with you? You know, because I, I, I've, I've just lost focus, right? And this yeah. happens in business all the time. And, you know, people latch onto something. And sometimes it's just, you know, good old-fashioned distraction. And sometimes it's great intent because people see something else going on. But a lot of the times it's a way to hide. And with hard problems, people distract themselves by finding other parts of problems that, that maybe they're more comfortable with. And they work on those first and they set aside the hard problem. And, of course, given that there are a lot of problems around, it's very easy to keep yourself, um, you know, distracted uh, in a way that's politically acceptable. Absolutely. And that's why staying on target is, is such a critical uh, behavior. So good. As, um, as we wrap up, what would you say, I always ask for kind of the one thing. So if there's one thing that we could do today, and I guess other than going and getting the book, Stop Guessing, The Nine Behaviors of Great Problems Solvers, um, what, what's the one thing I could do today to immediately, that would immediately leverage and get me, get me focused on solving the problem? Just, I, I would say, imagine, it, it's all about vision and desire, right? It, imagine if every single person in your community was a stronger problem solver, mm. and, including the best of them. Or imagine the best problem solver getting better that you know, and imagine if everyone else took a big step towards them. You know, what would it take to do that, and what would the impact be on your community um, if you improve people's problem solving that way? And, and, and hold on to that picture, and, and you'll look at things differently. That's beautiful. Nat Green is his name. The book, Stop Guessing, The Nine Behaviors of Great Problem Solvers. He uh, truly is um, trying to change the world by changing how we solve our problems. We will uh, we'll take a break. Go check out that book, Information. Figure out today, what would this world be like if we all could just solve a problem more effectively? What, uh, what fixes could we have? What lives could be changed? Stick with us, folks. You're part of that change helping uh, you become the good in the world. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome to her house. She is looking about. She is here to break down things you didn't know now. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. McKenna Baus in the house. McKenna is one of our uh, great producers and um, also over our social media. Today she's talking to us uh, about Singapore and what they are doing. I mean, all of a sudden you're landlocked and global warming starts shrinking your country as the, I guess, as the water rises, right? So 
What's uh, what's going on with Singapore? So some of the different things that they are doing are really, really interesting. A big part of their economy right now is oil. Um, but you can't – like storing that takes up a lot of space, yeah. right? And that's space on a very small area of land that they can't use for other things. You know, Singapore itself is just three fifths the area of New York City. Oh my so if that gives New you York an idea, City. yeah, of how small this country is, it's, it, it it's the size of a, a city, and so they're building giant caverns underground, like out in the ocean, like four hundred plus feet below sea level that they store it in. They store underneath. their oil in. Yeah. So they're doing these caverns underground to be able to store that better. Some of the other cool things that they're doing are they are shipping in massive amounts of sand from countries across the globe. Uh, so much so that there's countries that have just been like, we're done sending you sand. We send you so yeah. much. And You're it's sort a of sand like hog. Um, and so to, to like To add that, to their coastline. Yeah. And so what they do is they'll go several feet out. And build sort of like a wall, like a retaining wall. Then they drain in, into the ocean, and then they drain that of the water. And then they fill it up. And then they up. fill it up. And they are able to do that. Right now, they're like doing it in areas that are about 20 feet deep in terms of water. Yeah. And that's that works. They're not going to be able to go much farther out. Once you hit around 30 feet, it becomes yeah. too unstable because okay. of – the water pressure and all that it can't hold up. Well, China was doing this right in the in the they're building an air force base in the middle of the sea and so I, what's weird about this is at what point do you no longer own the property? Well, I mean, the nice thing is country borders usually extend. Yeah. out, out into, into, the into the ocean. ocean. And so if you're within that realm, you're okay. And okay. a lot of small countries um, though they're buying land in other countries. And so you have, you know, islands in the Pacific that are only maybe, you know, two, three, five feet above sea level. Anyways, yeah, right. they're going and buying chunks of land in Australia and things like that. And so that way, in the case that their country no longer exists because of, you know, rising sea levels, they can move all their people and sort Holy of cow. reestablish you Isn't know, that crazy? In these other parts. Um, another cool thing that Singapore is doing to deal with this lack of land is, you know, roads take up like a third of oh, the city. True. And they're like, well, what happens if we elevate the roads? Let's put the roads above things so we can have things underneath. And so they're starting to try and redo that. Um, Unbelievable. Factories, they're building in high rises. And then they'll have a ton of different factories all in the same high rise so they can share it. Um, you know, utility elevators, they can share electricity. And so all of that is just focused and building up even. Can you imagine like a 40 story factory and with got, five businesses? Yeah, in five it. different businesses. And that's something that's pretty common there now. Well, you know, that actually makes sense, right? When you think of like if you're manufacturing an automobile, mm-hmm. if you could have a parts you know, factory upstairs that's generating a lot of the parts that come downstairs. And I mean, I guess it's about efficiency, right? Yeah. These, these these countries have to be more efficient. And there's, I mean, they're doing really cool things. And it's amazing how fast they're able to get sort of a turnaround on these being ideas to being put into practice. And there's something that we can all learn from. You know, Singapore itself, though, is in a sort of unique situation yeah. um, in the sense that they, in all but name, 
are a one-party government. Um, you know, they have elections every year, but the same party just keeps getting <laughs> just elected. Keeps winning. And, and so they're able to just do what they want. Do what they want and yeah. get a lot of things done. There's not that same kind of you know, problems with things getting tied up in Congress. And so you have that. Additionally, the government owns like 90% of the real estate on this, you know, tiny, tiny little island. And so that, again, that helps, helps ease with the red tape. Um, but there is a cost. One of the largest um, Chinese cemeteries in the world is in Singapore. And oh, really? It's, you know, this, I mean, icon, except at the same time, it's a lot of land that's not really being used for anything no. else. And right. so it's slow. I, there's you know been a bit of pushback in sense of people being like, no, we need to protect this. But already like over 4,000 of the graves have been exhumed and the land there has been leveled because like we need this space. Sorry. Sorry to all of you who have gone before us. We need the space. We've got to put a – yeah, we've got to put a 7-Eleven in. Well, McKenna, thanks. Interesting insight. Total mind bender. Think about how fortunate you are to live in the U.S. where there's so much property, so much land that we can use. Uh, we will take a break. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. It's the house of bows. It's the house of bows. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. This is the program where we give you the latest, the greatest research and information to help you lead a healthier, happier life. To know what's going on, for heaven's sakes. There's just so much info out there, and you can't know it all, honestly. You don't even need to know it all. Just the parts that matter to you and your family, that is the goal of this program. Welcome, and happy days. It's Tuesday, too, by the way. I hope your commute is going well. Uh, By the way, snow. There's snow reporting in the valley. I had a little sensor come off on my car. No. That showed, showed, I I didn't know what it meant because it's a new car. (laughs) <laughs> but it uh, it beeped and it said it, it showed snowflakes. Really? I don't know how it's detecting that. I think uh, wow. But it was hmm. the temperature was also thirty like six degrees or something. You're making this up. Huh. Huh. Anyway, great program for you today. Uh, what do you think about medical marijuana? I don't really. <laughs> well, maybe you ought to start thinking about it because it's. You know, we we know it's a drug and there's illegal use of marijuana, but there's also medical marijuana and the legal use of marijuana. But the funny thing about it is we don't have a lot of research on the subject. I'm really interested to hear what this guest has to say because, yeah, that is kind of the first question that comes to mind when you hear about all these states legalizing marijuana is how much research has been done? Not a lot. And the Mm. interesting thing is, too, I mean, if you've ever known somebody with multiple sclerosis that was suffering through multiple sclerosis, it's horrible. So anything that could alleviate their pain, their suffering, I think would be wonderful. And that is one of the uses of medical marijuana. But they're just only a few years into the research, and it's hard to get money to research marijuana because it's a – it's a drug that is so controlled by the government, it's hard to even get your hands on the drug to do the research. 
I could think of tons of people that would be willing participants in any study that would come up. <laughs> the problem is you need you need the legal. I mean, it's not even legal marijuana. You need people with the medical issues, and to get enough of them in the study, and then to get it funded, it's a difficult thing. So we will be speaking with. Um, a Harvard professor and medical marijuana researcher and and learning. What what are they finding out about the whole thing? Um, Dr. Stacy Gruber will be joining us. Plus, you know, there's always there's always empty news we can talk about. There's always, you know, crazy headlines going on that are out there. There's usually a birthday here or there of somebody we could celebrate their birthday today. There are three today. Well, there are a lot more than three, but three that we're focusing on. Really? Mm-hmm. Should we focus on them right this minute? Let's do it. Sure. Let's. Okay. So we're going to play a little game. Yesterday's birthday was Babs, the Babster, Barbara Streisand. Yes. And to, uh, you, you tried to kind of trick me by playing her song, thinking I wouldn't know it, but no. you didn't know that I listened to Babs every day. Still to this and day, and Barry Manilow. So those are the two. Those oh, are the two people I listen to. All. <laughs> it's Mandy. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Uh, so okay, try to try to try to test me here. Okay, so you're going to hear three in rapid succession. Oh boy, the first one's kind of loud, okay. so be careful, <clears throat> and uh, we'll see how you do. Say hello to my little friend. You had me at hello. You had me at hello. B O problem. B O problem. Come on, guys. Do I have a B.O. problem here? <laughs> You're say, cheating. You're cheating right say now. Say hello to my little friend. Um, that's Pacino. Did you cheat? No. Um, you had me at hello is uh, the woman on the show. Yes. You're with, right so far. With the guy. Yeah. Who did the one thing? Um, can't remember her name. Renee Zellweger. Oh, Renee Zellweger. And I have no idea who's the BO kid. Terry? I didn't really hear it. Oh. His name is Hank Azaria. Oh, yeah. And he does like a third of the voices on The Simpsons. Yeah, he's incredible. Hank Azaria. That was Mo Sislak. The character Mo Sislak, taking a prank call from Bart Simpson. Say hello to my little friend. So it's Pacino, Zellweger, and... Azaria. Azaria. Great law firm, by the way. Don't you remember those guys? I think they were involved in the um, the O.J. Simpson case. Uh, Pacino, Zellweger, and Azaria. Hmm. Okay, I got to write that down so I, don't, so I don't ever forget that. Good stuff. And plus, by the way, by doing the little game, you also learn some great quotes you can use. Throughout the rest of your day. Do I have B.O.? What was the phrase? Uh, B.O. problem. Hey, guys, <laughs> do I have a B.O. problem here? <laughs> Good stuff. Good stuff. Okay, so we'll go from um, the fun of Pacino, Zellweger, and Azaria to uh, medical marijuana. But first, let's get to Terry South, a nice bridge between the two, and uh, find out what's going on around the rest of the country. Terry? Sometimes a bridge too far. President Trump had a video conference call Monday morning with NASA astronauts uh, Peggy Whitston and uh, Jack Fisher, who are aboard the International Space Station, his next big goal in space, sending astronauts to Mars. Tell me, said Trump, what do you see as timing for actually sending a human to Mars? The astronauts broke the news that, uh, that Trump's own NASA bill forecasts it won't likely happen until the 2030s, 
which is a little awkward as Trump was get, trying to get information on when it would happen and when yeah. it could possibly happen. And his administration is already basically saying not till the 2030s, not in my time period. Trump responded, well, we want to try and do it during my first term or worse during my second term. Wow. Get to Mars. Yeah. Uh, so we have to speed that up a little bit, he said. Everybody's kind of was quiet, like, uh, what? Says Trump wants, at worst, to have a human on Mars by 2024. At worst. Yeah. Because that's an improvement of decades on NASA's current plan, which is the first Mars flyby, penciled by 2033, and no real plan for a human landing on Mars anytime soon. But Trump wants to get it done in the next eight years. Has he ever mentioned this? Now there's questions on whether he understands how far away Mars is. Is he mistaking Mars for the moon? Because they've talked about wanting to, you know, probably try to shoot, go back to the you moon. You know, Mars, that that white, <laughs> so that does white, he, does he that know white what, planet. Does he know really where planets are? Does, I mean, interesting. Yeah, lots of confusion yeah. on that one. On Monday, the Senate confirmed former Georgia Governor Sonny Perdue to be the Agriculture Secretary in President Donald Trump's administration with a vote of 87 to 11. Wow. With all the other secretaries and all the issues they had, 87 to 11 is a win. Huge. It's agriculture. Purdue will be the first Southerner in the position of more than two decades. At his confirmation hearing in March, Purdue promised that he would advocate on behalf of rural American America, despite the fact that Trump has proposed cuts to some farm programs. The role of agriculture secretary includes, but is not limited to being in charge of around 100,000 employees and the nation's food and farm programs, including agriculture, subsidies, conservation efforts, and rural development programs. So we'll see what Mr. Perdue does. Uh, President Trump on Monday urged the United Nations Security Council to be prepared to impose new sanctions on North Korea, especially in light of concerns of the isolated regime could test its sixth nuclear bomb uh, yesterday. They actually had a oh, wow. uh, artillery salvo they launched. Did they really, huh? As we moved a submarine into the area, which is interesting because we usually don't tell people where our submarines are. Here goes our sub. And, and Trump has talked about how he doesn't want to give away his... his uh, military thoughts yeah, or his, whatever his stra- strategies, strategy and they're telling people there's a sub in the area trump said at the white house meeting that he, the status quo in north korea is also unacceptable uh he had a meeting yesterday with 15 u.n security council nations including both russia and china the council must be prepared to impose additional additional and stronger sanctions on north korea and uh, on their missile programs. So we'll see hmm. where they go hmm. there as tensions are always high there always uh there's a robot his name's Sally. Cute. Right? $30,000 robot. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's a, a dorm fridge size robot, if that okay, makes any like, sense. Okay, so like a small f- dorm fridge. Yeah, it makes you the most perfectly proportioned salad that you've ever eaten, says its creators. Mm. The, the company called Chow Biotics, <laughs> out of Silicon Valley, uh, Sally launches what could be a, f- a family of machines that will also prepare Chinese, Mexican, and Indian food. Until Chow Biotics finishes developing, developing a smaller home model, you're almost likely to uh, you're most likely to encounter Sally in a fast food restaurant, an office hotel, or a cafeteria. The machine uses sorted vegetables, diced in advance by humans, to mm. whip up any of more than a thousand salad combinations in less than a minute. Wow! Sadly, avocado is not on the list because it's too soft, and the machine destroys it. Mm. But it's all pre-cut, right? Yeah. So then, so really, all it does is mixes stuff, it sorts vegetables upon whatever you you know. So it's a thirty thousand dollars salad shooter. Yeah. 
Is it Sally or is it Sal E like Wall E? It's S A L L Y. So Sally. Mm. So yeah. So it hmm. kind of sorts the vegetables yeah. into whatever bowl, and it does it in the right proportion. So you need three cucumbers here, and you need four tomatoes there, and but huh. everything's all pre-cut, so it's not really what's it doing. Yeah, it, As it, you, it's not even a salad shooter. That gives it too much credit. The right. shooter actually chops. It's just a salad like mixer. Yeah. But $30,000. It's an expensive salad mixer. And but and I like their description of the um what was it? The dorm size dorm fridge. size fridge. So a mini fridge. Yeah, why don't they just say mini fridge? Be- yeah. I because mean, all these people were in a dorm last year when they when they invented came up with the, the salad. idea. Shooter. Then they mixer. rented an office park, and now they're making a robot. See again, and this made the news. Well, yeah, and we're reading it. Yeah, wow. I, I just, slow news day. A little bit. I just wanted <laughs> you to go, huh? I just think, well, well, come on, we've got President Trump saying we're going to Mars or the Moon, whichever it is, in the next eight years, right? To like, what is that? Twenty Pre- years pres- ahead of schedule. Pre- President Bush had some. Uh, some lofty goals. He had some st- strategery. So then my question is, are they goals or are they just – are you just kind of just saying things to make people feel good? Yeah. Well, they say that uh, you're not going to accomplish the goal unless you tell it to somebody else. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the first steps. Well, Kennedy said we're going to the moon. Let's do that. And we did it. Right. So Trump says we're going to that Mars thing. Do it. We'll get her done. Except everything in the budget he just put out cuts yeah. money from programs that would lead us to Mars. Well, yeah, that's a, just a technicality. So what are we gonna what are we gonna use to get to Mars? The the astronauts also talked about how it's gonna be a worldwide effort. It can't just be one country no, because right. the money, the technology it's gotta go. Everyone's gotta go. I think what we'll find out in about a year, there will be a lot of those salad mixer fridges things. Yeah. Those will be we'll be able to just maybe cut up one of those. All make, right. You know, use the parts from that. Save money there because that's going nowhere fast. I think Trump's only going to allow a man on Mars, though. Why is that? Because that's where they're from. Oh, men are from Mars. That's yeah. right. I wonder if you read that book. He is. He does want to get to Venus, though. He says he has a hankering to get to Venus for some reason. Hmm. I think that's where the women are from. <laughs> men are from Mars. Women, women are from Venus. You haven't heard a lot of people talking about going to Venus. No, there's not much on Venus. I think it's sexism. mostly gas. So. It's sexism. Mm. Anyway, we'll take a break, folks. When we come back, we're going to be talking about medical marijuana research. What really is going on? What does the science say, anyway? And uh, what does the future look like? Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, last Saturday, a man in Utah was suffering from a severe form of pneumonia, and he died after being denied a double lung transplant. Uh, The reason? The University of Utah found marijuana, a Schedule I drug, in his system, which removed him from the transplant list. Uh, The university hospital said it does not do transplants for those with active alcohol, tobacco, or illicit drug use. Although the effects of tobacco and alcohol have been studied for several decades, where are we with marijuana research? And especially when it comes to a completely other side of this, the medical marijuana, um, 
where it could impact the, the lives so positively of so many people with medical issues. So we wanted to bring in one of the leading experts on the subject. Dr. Stacy Gruber is an associate professor um, and uh, at Harvard uh, Medical School, actually associate professor in the Department of Psychiatry at the Harvard Medical School. She's also the director of the Marijuana Investigations uh, Neurodiscovery uh, research unit or project, and uh, we're honored to have you, Dr. Gruber. Thank you for being with us and taking this time. Well, thanks so much for having me. Talk to us about um, just the research that's going on. What I hear over and over, more and more states are passing laws to legalize marijuana, but the research, it seems like, in the field of marijuana is really pretty, it's pretty young. It's in its infancy. Yeah, you know, so for remember first, of course, that cannabis or marijuana has been around for thousands of years. Right. right? Our first documented use, 2700 BC. People have been using it for medicine at least that long. Yeah. Um, You know, and despite some of what we know with regard to recreational marijuana use, where I've spent more than 20 years looking at the effect on some of our youngest uh, and most vulnerable consumers, what we know about the impact of medical marijuana use is still, again, you're right, relatively little compared to what we know about recreational cannabis work. And, you know, there's an awful lot of ground to cover. I like to say that policy has basically outpaced science at this point, and it's difficult to study given some of our current restrictions. But clearly, we see a fairly large signal in lots of different conditions and, and symptoms where people and patients are reporting benefit. Uh, or improvement without a ton of clinically, you know, sort of sound empirical research at this point. So we need to we need to fill this gap pretty quickly. So let's let's just kind of let's give us the background, the history of the recreational use. I mean, but like in a minute, like because I, I really want to <laughs> okay. get into the medicinal side, but it's almost sure. like to break everyone's paradigm. Um, it's almost like you got to start with the recreational because that's where everyone's head goes. But overall, right. you've had some pretty amazing research talking about impulsivity and behavior, or the, what the marijuana does to the brain. Maybe just give us a little summary of what we know about recreational use. Sure. And then let's quick, get into it. A quick thumbnail sketch, as it were, right? So, yeah. again, you know, it's been around forever, and it was actually legal in this country um, until about 1940. Actually, 1970, it became illegal. But what we know about the effect of marijuana, for example, on the brain or behavior really does come exclusively from studies of recreational users. And in a nutshell, what we know is that people who use marijuana look different, quote unquote, than people who don't. What do I mean by that? They perform tasks slightly differently. Their brain structure and function uh, actually look different as well. There are some differences in academic achievement and performance. All of this is Um, still sort of hotly debated, right? There's lots of people who say they don't see any differences in marijuana users versus those who don't. But most of our work and that of my colleagues across the nation and really the the world suggest that there are differences associated with marijuana use specifically when people use early on. That is when the Mm. brain is neurodevelopmentally immature. Your brain's not done yet. And exposure to things like outside what we call cannabinoids uh, may very well change the trajectory or the course of development. And that's really the more important point, not just are there differences between those who use and those who don't. Our research suggests that the greatest differences in cognitive performance, brain structure, brain function, really occur in those with the earliest onset of use before the age of 16, sort of Mm. chronic, regular use before age 16. Okay. So, I mean, again, like you were saying, we've been using it for a medicinal purpose. Mm -hmm. So, and inside, one of the things I loved about this article I read um, that you were involved in is 
the fact that um, marijuana inside of it are so many more things that we don't even know how they work. And so maybe explain what what is going on inside of the uh, inside of marijuana. Sure. The plant itself is this rather complex, magical, uh, I always call it the, the, the most complicated but, but seemingly magical plant we know. Um, every, we, we have this one term, marijuana, and it really does refer to anything that comes from the plant, cannabis sativa. There are hundreds of constituents, that is, you know, hundreds of different chemicals, including what we call phytocannabinoids. These are things that interact with our own brain and body system of receptors and chemicals. The main players here are things like Delta 9 tetrahydrocannabinol, better known as THC. Mm, there you go. What, yeah, there, there you go. We hear about that one all the time, right? Exactly right. This is how we measure potency, and this is basically what recreational users are looking for, products that are high in THC because THC works very efficiently with our own endocannabinoid system, and we get an effect. So recreational users are looking for things high in THC to have um, an altered state of being, that high, that euphoria that lots of recreational users are looking for. Now, in addition to THC, there's lots of other constituents, including cannabidiol, the main non-intoxicating constituent of the plant. We've heard lots about it and the potential medical benefits of cannabidiol for a range of conditions and indications. But by no means is cannabidiol, as exciting as it is, and I'm very excited about it, by no means is that the only cannabinoid we should be interested in. You know, it's just yeah. it's not the case of these two main players and nobody else is on the stage. There are hundreds of others, cannabichromine, uh, tetrahydrocannabidivarin, cannabigerol, cannabinol. You, we had this exhaustive list and really very little research in other cannabinoids thus far. So there's lots going on in the plant, and there are many who say you really want a whole plant-derived product from a medical perspective to give you the full what's referred to as the entourage effect. That is the sort of synergistic way in which these chemicals work with each other. Mm. See, no wonder you're just barely getting into it medically because <laughs> there's too much there. There's, there's a lot there and, and there's lots of problems with something that's, quote, a plant. Yeah. It's very, very difficult to have what we call consistency. What do we need in medicine? When you buy Advil in uh, Provo, it's the same Advil that I buy in Boston, right? Right. So we don't have any question. If I buy OG Kush, which is a strain of cannabis, very popular, I might add, in Boston or even you know, in my county in Boston, it's going to look or, or be different from OG Kush that's um, – it's grown uh, yeah. in other parts of my state and definitely from the West Coast or the Midwest. There are lots of variations. And so in order to standardize these things, we have to set up some parameters. That's Boy. the hard part. And then I guess another dilemma you're running into is because it's been uh, deemed a Schedule One drug by the government, it's almost impossible for universities to get the marijuana they need to do the studies. Yeah, there are certainly some extraordinarily um, challenging restrictions that are currently in place. We can currently really only use products that are sourced by the National Institute on Drug Abuse, NIDA. Um, and while NIDA has expanded their portfolio, that is the number of products available, because we're very interested, of course, in studying products that people are actually using. So we have to study products that reflect, you know, current levels of potency and current what we call cannabinoid constituent ratios, you know, how much of THC versus how much CBD and other, other chemicals are present. Um, 
you know, NIDA doesn't have an exhaustive supply. It's not as if they can produce everything. So that's another inherent limitation in addition to this fact that it's, it's Schedule One, We don't have the ability to go to other places, to go to a dispensary and say, you know, I'd like to get enough marijuana or cannabis to do this study. Um, I, you know, I'd like to buy X amount of this. You can't really do that these days. That's, that's a, a very, very large obstacle for us currently. Is it- potency is, is, you know, off the charts. We're, we see people routinely who are coming in with flower product, conventional flower product, where the THC level, that main constituent that's responsible for the psychoactivity, is north of 16 or 18 percent. National average is about 12 percent. That's up from 4 percent in 95. So that's a 200 percent increase in about 10 years. Is So even if you were in a, a state that has legalized marijuana, could you use that marijuana for your research? So, Because you have national grants, I'm assuming. You have other – I mean, it's got to be so complicated. It is complicated. It's a great question. And federal funds really cannot be used to study things like that unless you're getting your products sourced from yeah. the National Institute on Drug Abuse. Last year, the DEA relaxed the restriction for the um, single source requirement. So other um, entities can now apply for the ability to, to supply researchers like me with products. It'll be a long time in coming. Um, you know, and, and that's another frustration. So, yes, it's legal in my state, for example, for medical use and <laughs> very recently for recreational use. That doesn't mean that I can administer as a clinical researcher cannabis to my study subjects. The, mm. the, the large uh, MIND program, Marijuana Investigations for Neuroscientific Discovery program that we started a little less than three years ago, the first study is designed to look at patients who are using medical marijuana. It'd be great if we could give them products, but we can't. So instead, we assess them before they start any regimen, and then we follow them, and we have their samples of their most commonly used products analyzed by an outside lab. That's as close as I can get. Mm. And, okay, so you have to help us dispel the myth because it seems <laughs> like a lot of conservative people that would never go near the drug sit there and think, okay, so everyone's going to either do it illegally. Now some states are legalizing it. And then all medical marijuana is is a way to have your doctor write you a prescription so you can legally do an illegal drug everywhere else or whatever. So so tell us how it's really changing lives. I mean, I've, I've been with a lot of people that have multiple sclerosis and yeah. which is such an ugly yeah. uh, kind of existence for these people. But to know that medical marijuana helps there, where else does it help? How does it help? So it helps across a number of conditions and indications, and it's really quite staggering. And, and you're right, for folks with um, MS and spasticity and related conditions, actually the, the National Academy of Sciences put out a paper at the end of, or I think at the middle of January, 395 pages about the health effects of cannabis. And what they found, and this shocked some people, was that there was conclusive or substantial evidence that cannabis or marijuana was effective for improving patient reported MS-related spasticity, so that's, that's one, mm. uh, for the treatment of chronic pain in adults, that's two, um, for uh, the use of uh, sort of prevention of nausea and vomiting-related symptoms as a function of chemotherapy, that's three, and more recently, the sort of lead author of that paper has come out and said, we do find evidence for the use of medical cannabis in intractable seizure disorders, specifically those with pediatric origins, so kids with Dravet syndrome or Lennox-Gastaut. So, that's four, wow. um, that, that the National Academy is an independent group of scientists hand-selected to sort of investigate what is the deal 
here. Um, that's what they came up with, and many have questioned the current status as a Schedule One substance based only on that set of findings. You know, if by definition the Schedule One substance means there is no accepted medical value, and yet you have a national report that just said There's, here we yeah. have these <laughs> we have four these examples, yeah. Yeah, so so that's a good question. We also hear reports of, you know, our patients in our medical marijuana study uh, use very often for anxiety, for PTSD and related symptoms, for sleep. Um, there's there's a range of indications that people are using these products for, and they vary with regard to whether they're THC heavy or CBD heavy, no THC at all, just a little THC, um, whether they're vaporized or smoked, whether they're used um, sort of sublingually under the tongue or ingested as edibles, there is such a range of, of products available and modes of use. It's, it's, a very, um, it's a very comprehensive and complex landscape currently. Yeah. Um, and people are using it for lots of different things that you might not imagine. Some people are using it for skin-related conditions. They have these topicals that are great for different types of rashes. Huh. But, you know, I think the thing that got the attention of the nation um, sort of more recently, a few years ago, really was the use of um, things like high CBD or cannabidiol-based uh, products for intractable seizure disorders. Charlotte's Web, created by the Stanley Brothers out in Colorado, really changed the way we think of this. You have a child who had 200-plus seizures a week go from not being able to walk or talk or function as a normal, healthy five-year-old to no seizures. Hmm. Walking, talking, playing with her twin sister. These, these are amazing and compelling stories. And I, I would challenge anybody who isn't made of wood to right. know, look at some of these videos and say, yeah, you're right. We shouldn't, we shouldn't at least explore this as a potential therapeutic well, um, and, option. And nobody seems to be making any noise about um, amphetamines being used to, to handle or help children with uh, ADHD. And yet yeah. that's, you know, on the street, it's, they're worth a lot of money. And, yeah. and, and then we also have all the people um, with uh, – what's the word? What's the drug? That, opiates. All, opiates. All the, all, yeah. all the opiate extreme stories we're hearing, lives being destroyed by opiates. So we've always been using a medicinal version of really difficult, even Schedule two drugs mm-hmm. or Schedule one drugs. So, so it's, isn't it the same thing? Well, and, and it's funny actually because when we think of things like you know the opiate epidemic, remember those are lar- those are not Schedule One; those are Schedule Two. That's two, right? Dies across the nation, I think, every 19 minutes from an overdose of opioids. We are in the middle of a national epidemic. This is something we must must get um, a leg up on, right? And actually, interestingly, from you know our perspective, and we've seen this in states with medical marijuana laws, there are fewer prescriptions for opiates written. Hmm. There are fewer opiate-related overdoses, and in our study, for sure, we see people using uh, significantly less opiate-based product over time uh, once they start a medical marijuana or a cannabis regimen. Will that hold up for everyone across the world? I don't know. It's too soon to tell. But we've seen a 42% reduction in opiate use between baseline when people aren't using medical cannabis or medical marijuana. And after three months of treatment, that's a big drop. We also see a drop in benzodiazepine use and in antidepressant use. So these are, these are important things. And, and you're right. We don't see the same level of outrage at this point, although there certainly was initially with the use of stimulants in kids with ADHD. Yeah. Wow. So interesting. Uh, Stacy. stick with us. Let's take a break. We're speaking with Dr. Stacy Gruber, director of The Mind Project and uh, also a professor, associate professor of, uh, in the Department of Psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. 
medical marijuana research. Um, so much we're learning. There's more in that little drug than just the euphoria creating, you know, mechanisms. There's so much more. Um, even stopping seizures, minimizing, you know, spasticity, chronic pain, nausea and vomiting. Oh, stick with us, folks. We'll take a break. We'll come back. Just giving you the information, helping you understand what's going on out there in the big world. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. On the show today, one of the leading researchers uh, on the subject of medical marijuana research, Dr. Stacy Gruber joins us, and um, we're honored to have her. She is the director of the MIND Project, and the MIND Project is the Marijuana Investigations for Neuroscientific Discovery Project at McLean, uh, McLean Hospital in the suburb of Boston. And uh, Stacy also is an associate professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School with her clinical focus in the application of neurocognitive models and multimodal brain imaging to better characterize neurobiological risk factors. Yikes! Uh, Stacy, thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. This, um, again, we're calling you from a very conservative university in a very conservative state, but even our own state government here in Utah has been researching the medical marijuana use. Mm -hmm. And um, so so help us – I mean because there really is so little we know about the medicinal side, but we also see – I mean, people are smart. We've been, like you said, we've been using this for thousands of years Mm -hmm. um, one way or another. And we're really just all trying to medicate. It's all the same thing. It's, but it, it, I like the idea that we have medical research behind uh, a lot of these decisions. Are, are, how, what, how do you, how do you, how do you kind of balance it between the use of you know people using it out in the streets and maybe not using it in the appropriate ways or healthier healthy ways, and and your research. How do you balance it? So first, actually, you know, I think um, it's important to make the distinction between recreational and medical marijuana use. And very often people lump them together because, as you said earlier, a lot of folks think that medical marijuana is just a way for people, you know, once you're certified, that's basically just a free pass to use something that's illegal legally. Right, right. I got to tell you, so I, I think I'm one of the only researchers who actively studies both recreational and medical marijuana use. And, you know, there's no question. Our recreational consumers say, look, I use because I want to chill out. I want to feel good. I want to, you know, I want to get high. Our patients repeatedly say, I don't want to get high. I just want to feel better. Mm. And that's a big, big difference Huge. because, you know, when you look at intention for use and ultimately, you know, the way that folks use and the products that people use, that's an important distinction. They are not the same. The products may be the same. You know, the plant from which these right. things are derived is the same. But intention for use, uh, absolutely different. So it's important to keep that in mind. And I have to, t- I have to say, I expected to see more people coming through who are sort of what some have referred to as the weekend warriors, you know, yeah. uh, you know, I, I have a terrible back pain, and so I need to have a certification right away. Um, we're not seeing that. We're seeing people who have had some real difficulties in their lives with very chronic conditions, whether it's pain or PTSD, um, sleep-related issues, anxiety. 
and that's, I think, a very important distinction relative to those who are really just looking to change their current state of being. We already see that, right, in emergency rooms where people are trying to get opiates and they're going in faking yeah. pain. But wouldn't it be powerful if you could get the derivatives out of marijuana that would actually – uh, maybe not be the psychedelic. I don't. Know, I don't know what the word would be, but the sure, kind of psychotropic. Sure. Yeah, the psychotropic kind of effect, but but might still be able to allay the PTSD, which is a horrible, torturous thing for someone that's going through it. Right, and and you know that's exactly what some of us are are trying to do. You know, the very first study that will assess the use of smoked cannabis or, or marijuana for PTSD is currently underway. Um, that's using NIDA-based products, um, and that's, I think, very important. It's great that there's finally one study that's underway. We have a study that's dedicated specifically to veterans um, because they're a mm. largely understudied population, and these, these people are desperate for things to treat lots of different symptoms, including, and very importantly, PTSD. And what what people have reported anecdotally is that they do feel better after using cannabis. It, it, is it true? Is it not true? And by the way, you know, what, what affects the change? What types of products? And, you know, it's very, very early on, but I'm very encouraged to see that so many people are interested in exploring this because, you know, the use of products like, let's say, Charlotte's Web, uh, things that are high in cannabidiol and very, very low uh, in THC or, or in some cases have no THC, if these products are efficacious for helping the symptoms, then there really shouldn't be any question about whether or not people could be allowed to use them. Mm. Oh, yeah. You, you bring up such a good point because when I, when I think of medical marijuana, even a bill, I'm sitting there thinking, okay, so now we're going to turn this into like Cheech and Chong's medical <laughs> office. And you, but really, I, for the people that have found um, – like the family with the child that had the seizures in Colorado – and how hard it was for them to get their marijuana, right. um, and, and then even to have to get it in an illicit way mm-hmm. instead of through your medical professional and actually diagnosed properly. And right. it's, there's, it's, there's something, too, just about the shame of having to do it in, a, in an illegal way. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's a huge problem, and you know, I use the the, sto- the the example of Charlotte Figgy as literally one example. There are countless thousands of what we refer to as medical marijuana refugees. These are families with very, very ill children who move from wherever they happen to live in the United States because they cannot get access legally to products that they are fairly convinced will help their children, and so they they move to Colorado or to um, Washington or other places. Primarily, I think Colorado. And, you know, that's a pretty big transition and a very big hardship in many cases where, you know, there's no infrastructure and financially it's a real problem. And I think if you look at the, you know, sort of the outcome when people are able to actually treat their kids, and I'm not suggesting that this works absolutely in the same way for everybody, but it's certainly compelling enough to make us need to take a step back and really look at it. There are clinical trials of things like Epidiolex. Epidiolex is a GW Pharma uh, manufactured product, and it is basically a purified extracted form of cannabidiol. So kids are given this product. Um, again, it's, it's not a whole plant uh, product. It, it, they really just extracted out the cannabidiol. And those studies are showing some very compelling clinical improvements as well, perhaps different data from the, the kids who are taking sort of the whole plant-derived products. But at least we're moving forward. We have mm. some clinical trials where we're really looking at children, you know, in the right way, in an empirically sound way where it's a real trial and they're getting the same products over time and people are assessing them, which is, 
I think, a, a, a giant step forward. Is, is the medical profession ready for this? Or are, like, all the early adopters, like, potheads? Um, because I, I'm, I'm sitting here thinking about doctors, and if all of a sudden, if, if they opened up the state of Utah to medical marijuana use, mm-hmm. you'd still have a bunch of doctors, I would assume, that aren't educated in it, that don't understand the dosing. And, um, and how, do you, how do you roll that out? And, and is the research there medically to even roll that out effectively? It's a, another great question. I think in Utah you have the ability to utilize CBD products only for uh, seizure-based disorders in kids. I, okay. think, I think that's your current Utah-based law. Um, but a great question. You know, there are certainly many in the medical profession who are not necessarily convinced that this is a, an area that they want to be involved in. They worry about restrictions and potential punitive action at the federal level. This is still illegal oh, yeah, at the federal, right. level. federal level. So oh, and then, by the way, and with a new Secretary of Justice, Sec- Justice Department, that uh, or Attorney General, that might fight it. Right. I think there's so much that's unknown. This is a, a really, it, it's sort of um, an unknown territory at this point, right? It's like the Wild West. We don't really know what to expect. Again, we have federal and state laws at odds with each other. And many practitioners do not want to risk uh, their extraordinarily valuable medical license or their reputation in an mm. area that is seemingly really still very green. Haha, <laughs> get it? Yeah, totally. Uh, <laughs> but, but it's true, and I, I don't blame them. I think this is a very, very complex and difficult area, and it's one that we have to navigate cautiously, and we have to use the very best information that we have, I think, to inform the public, whether it's recreational or medical use, how best to use these products safely and wisely and to understand the potential risks as well as the benefits because nothing is all good or all bad. Right. Where do you see we'll be in 20 years based on the research that's out there? So, you know, that's a, another great question. I think um, so much of this will come down to what happens, you know, sort of in the short term in terms of the, the scheduling of, of cannabis. I think a lot of people are very concerned about continued restrictions with regard to research. So it's very difficult to research something that's a Schedule One substance, especially when you have a single source supplier as we currently do. Now that's going to change, so maybe that will open the floodgates for lots of different uh, research opportunities. My hope is that in 20 years we'll know a lot more about you know, the optimal ways in which people can use cannabinoid-based products, whether they're whole plant or single product extractions, for a range of indications and how best to use these things without, in many cases where it's not desirable, the psychoactive effects. You know, there, there's some evidence suggesting that if you pre-treat individuals with cannabidiol, um, even if you use a THC-based product, you're not going to have the same level of intoxication mm. as you would have if you'd only used the THC product. That's very important uh, because it really opens the door to lots of different mechanistic explorations. And that's the kind of thing, you know, I, I think really we, we need to be focused on going forward. Yeah. Well, and again, too, boy, what if we just didn't tell – I mean – the only reason that people are worried about it, too, is because they they know it's coming from marijuana. But people are putting Botox in their body, for heaven's <laughs> sakes. And right. The, right. That, that also created a problem at first. Um, right. I guess most of us don't know where the the, the drugs in the, that we're taking for heart medicine or for whatever, we don't know where they're coming from. But it, it's just when you call it a canna, cannabinoid, it's like mm-hmm. it doesn't seem as bad. But when you call it reefer, it's all of a sudden it's horrible. 
Well, marijuana is really a fairly pejorative term, right? It's a negative term. Cannabis really is the more correct term for right. anything that comes from the plant. But, you know, again, another great point. Lots of people use products. You know, I, I had somebody who drove a patient to an appointment not long ago who said, oh, I was so anxious before I got on the highway. I had to take a Xanax. And I thought, oh, I'm not sure you really want to, <laughs> you know, yeah. hop behind the wheel right after you've done this. Um, but that's legal. Yeah. And, you know, that's not necessarily something we spend a lot of time thinking about. Of course, those of us, you know, involved in substance abuse research or substance misuse research, we always think about that. You know, this is certainly not um, in a class by itself. People use and misuse lots of different substances. And cannabis is, you know, simply one extraordinarily complex plant that may have extraordinary therapeutic potential, as well as some areas of concern for people primarily who are vulnerable to the potential negative effects. We just need to be mindful of it. Yeah, so true. Dr. Stacy Gruber, thank you so much for your, your wonderful research, your insight, and educating us, helping us at least understand this so we don't immediately just have the knee-jerk reaction. This is changing lives for good, and it needs to be controlled. It needs to be, We need to make sure that, you know, people are using this product effectively. Again, Dr. Stacy Gruber is... Um, is the head of the Marijuana Investigations for Neuroscientific Discovery, or MIND Project. Also, uh, she is um, an associate professor of psychiatry at the Harvard Medical School and uh, doing what she can to just understand and continue the research in uh, medical marijuana. We'll take a break, come back, wrap up. Hour number one of the Matt Townsend Show. Stick uh, Stick with us. We're here to help you get the information you need. We'll be right back. coach would have put me in fourth quarter we'd have been state champions because life doesn't come with a handbook you need a coach here's dr matt and his coaching corner Play ball. welcome back friends to the matt townsend show you know um it really is it's we are so afraid of what we don't know and again drugs are bad drugs are bad and we see that with the opiate epidemic. So many people's lives and families are being destroyed by um, opiate use. And, and yet, you know, we keep just handing out these opiates as a painkiller, as a pain reducer. And we're terrified that marijuana will become, I guess, the same thing. Um, in, in reality, though, there, it's, it is, the, the research on it is, is pretty young. And we're learning a lot, and it's it, there's a way to break up the drug itself, as we just learned, into so many different components that you can actually use the benefits of it just to simply stop seizures. And if you know somebody that has seizures, that can't get a driver's license because they have seizures, they can't control their seizures, or a boy that's having 200 seizures a day or 200 seizures a week, you all of a sudden, it dawns on you that, hmm, this isn't... This isn't a way to live. So we probably need to let science do what science does. And let's also educate the fact that the other research about recreational use that Stacy was finding is it's not healthy for kids with developing brains. We've even found and had many guests on the show that say the, the, the brain is developing till the age of 25. So drug use, I would even say to 25 is probably not – shouldn't be in the cards. Marijuana use, especially, right? So, how do we get over our fears, and how do we go about having laws passed and doing so intelligently instead of just reacting and reacting to each other? 
it's not an easy thing. But at some point, there all of these things on the earth, all of the plants, all of the fruits, and everything we've been given is here to be utilized effectively. And there are healthy ways to do it. And so um, instead of just rebelling and being fearful about it, let's just learn. And once we learn, let's educate. Let's share it with each other and not just always react to the fears we have. Um, we will we'll take a break, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. And we can do it, each of us, just by focusing where we have influence. Stick with us. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to hour number two of the program. Dr. Matt here, along with Terry and, of course, Jeffrey. The gang is all here. We're all here. And excited about today's... uh, topic we're going to be talking about how how it may not be survival of the fittest well thank goodness because i'm not as fit as i'd like to be it might be survival of the kindest yes yes and really when you think about uh evolution is it the is it the strongest that always has survived or was it the most socially aware the one that could get along with others that could gather the rest of the herd together to kill the evil, mean one that was harming everybody. What would have given you the advantage in a tribal community being just physically strong or being emotionally and socially strong? Well, according to the latest research, probably emotionally and socially strong. How strong was the person that made it? That did the research. Were they physically strong or just like emotionally strong? They're emotionally strong. Yeah, okay. But see, but think about it. But not just even emotionally. But I guess what I'm saying, how much can he lift? No, but here's no. the here's the key. If I could get seven people together, we could stop a guy that can lift a lot. I don't know. We could outthink you. We could I outplay have, you. I we could outwork comic, you. I have we some could... comic books that could uh, <laughs> see. But that's what, that's why superheroes are such a farce. They're not real. Some of them are. Because if you notice so many of them, they're not good socially. They all live alone in a cave house with a butler that will hey. do anything they say. They're Heavy. strange. They have a little sidekick, a young man that mm-hmm. is gullible mm-hmm. and willing to just be the servant. That wears tights. And they all wear tights. Well, None you, of this you, happens socially. You have to be a symbol, Matt. <laughs> you can't just be a man. You have to be a symbol to unite people. That was taken almost yes, verbatim see. from Batman Begins. Yes. Really? That was creepy. Uh, so we'll get to all that fun ahead. Um, how maybe being a little bit more compassionate may be your key to survival. We'll get to that fun. Plus, of course, um, some uh, headlines, empty news, we call it. Not all news is, you know, full and robust of facts and information, some of it's empty. And some of it's from the Matt Townsend Show, which is why we call it MT News. Also today, we're going to be doing a little um, 
test. We're losing a lot of our producers as they go away to college. They go to internships. Well, they're at college. Well, I mean, well, yes. Yeah, sorry. sorry. <laughs> Some are going to other schools. Some oh, okay. are going to other programs. Yeah. Some are graduating. Mm. Some are getting jobs. I heard today some are getting married. And some are getting married. Did some, you know that? Did you know about this? No. About marriage for people some, get married? That were they're working for us. They're not sharing this information at all? No. You didn't okay. I gotta find out then. Before this person leaves, we have to we have to talk to them. Holy cow. You are a marriage expert. There's love in the air and we ought to have him on the air before we do that. Yeah, his exit interview. So his exit away. interview. His as exit interview. If it is true that this is happening. Does his name does <gasps> his name rhyme with Raven Royal? Yes. <laughs> oh. that, that's the rumor, so I have to okay. confirm it and then we'll, well try rumor to get an exit interview. Uh so we'll get to all that fun straight ahead. We're gonna because all these people are leaving, we have some we're gonna test some other ideas. About potential show ideas, we're going to run through some of those. Jeff's got a million of them. Well, we've Great. been we've been having people bang down the door trying to become regular contributors on the show. Yeah, and and we'll have to we'll, we'll have to sort through all of our choices because there's there's so many choices. Car tip Friday. Car tips. Car tips like changing your oil and you know, stuff uh, like that. No, that was one. I just I kind of shot it down. I was like, eh. Car tips. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Just take it to the jiffy. Yeah, have some guy do it. Yeah. We'll get to all that fun. But first to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on around the rest of the country? President Donald Trump signaled on Monday, according to a report in Politico, that he would be fine with a delay in a showdown over the planned wall at the U.S.-Mexican border until September, possibly averting a potential government shutdown this week as his presidency reaches the 100-day mark. He reportedly made the remarks while speaking to a group of conservative media outlets during a reception at the White House. Trump, however, did not give up on the plan to get Congress to fund the wall's construction. Democrats previously said they would not vote for spending legislation to keep the government open if it includes funds for a wall. Arkansas authorities carried out the country's first back-to-back execution since 2000 on Monday night, executing Marcel Williams after a judge issued but then quickly lifted a temporary stay. Another inmate, Jack Jones, had been executed hours earlier, and because of some complications, lawyers tried to get the second execution stopped, but after a stay was issued, was soon lifted, and the second execution moved forward. Arkansas, which until this month had not executed an inmate since 2005, has been embroiled in controversy over its plans to execute eight inmates by the end of April when its lethal injection drugs expire. Members of the Writers Guild of America, this this may be the most important story of the day, Matt. What? Members of the Writers Guild of America reportedly voted in favor of authorizing a week, uh, authorizing a week, merely a week before the union's contract is set to expire May 1st. The Guild said, according to a report in the LA Times, 96% of the 6,300 writers who cast ballots voted in favor of strike authorization. Negotiations between the Guild and the Alliance of Motion Picture and TV Producers could still lead to an agreement to avoid the strike. The negotiations are set to resume today. The Alliance said in a statement on Monday that its members are committed to reach a deal at the bargaining table that keeps the industry working. This is your TV. Uh, this is your movies. This is everything. Come on. This everything is so... you use to escape life. I mean, sure, North Korea is a threat, but yeah. this is a bigger threat. Our TV is at stake here. <laughs> Holy cow. What will happen to Netflix? Absolutely. Well, that's the, that's a good thing is there's plenty to go back and look at, but new Not things. Not if you've seen it all. Right. <laughs> if you've watched everything on there, you're in, you're in dire straits here if they go on strike. Yeah. So. 
Anything you can do out there, please, please make sure that happens. And then uh, finally, something to help parents, the Max Motor Dream Crib. Huh? It's commissioned by Ford's Spanish Design Studio. It is a stationary cot that simulates the relaxing sounds and motions of a car ride. How it works is the parent collects the sensory inputs of a car ride on a phone app, then downloads those inputs into the Max Motor Dream Crib, which uses a gentle rocking motion in addition to an engine hum and LED lights to give the baby the feeling of riding in a car. Oh, boy. Ford says the parents lost a total of about 44 days of sleep during the first year of late-night feedings and teething pains. Often the best way to calm a child down is to take them for a car ride, but that can be risky with tired parents behind the wheel early in the morning. Right. So you take your app, it records how your car functions and moves and all that, and then you download that info into the, the baby crib, and then the crib mimics that so you don't have to actually take your kid and put him in the car in the middle of the night. Can you sign Can you sign a lease on the crib so Apparently, you just pay for like a three-year, 12,000-mile lease? It, it may just be an, an addition to your next Ford purchase. Who knows? So this is what the baby hears. Yeah, and the baby just falls asleep. Oh, well, not yeah. this, not this, this part. This is nice. Not this part. Yeah, I could see how this could lull him to sleep. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah, and then, then the crib just kind of rocks back and yeah. forth. Bounces off the inside of the car, apparently. Huh. Wow. <laughs> now, I feel like my baby should be buckled in, though. Well, I mean, you're going to buckle the kid in, but may, I don't know. In the crib, should they be buckled in? Yeah, is for gonna, sure. And maybe wear a helmet. Depends on how reckless a driver you They're are. They're going to drive like that. No. Well, it says, as for how awesome this idea, if it, if it actually will show up at your like, local baby store, be ready for purchase. It says, for now, the Max Motor Dream is a one-off pilot. Oh. But following numerous inquiries, the company is considering putting the unique cot into full-scale production. Hmm. You know, it's interesting how all these things are coming out that you didn't even know you needed. Hmm. Like, wouldn't you rather just have like a Benadryl cot that just <laughs> is like a nice, warm, hazy fog cot that just makes you feel like you're floating? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yes. Like, I'd rather have that. The fog of cough medicine. Yeah. Yes. Just anything that, yeah. If you're going to make a cot, you could also do the dryer cot mm. that just like is, has the vibration of a dryer or a washing machine that just kind of... So not something that actually simulates being spun inside a dryer. No. Okay, like they say, babies that are colicky, you put them on the washer, and or the dryer, I guess, whichever one that makes the most movement. We have a swing. Oh, do you? Great. Yeah. I mean, why not just get the swing baby yeah. swing cot? Turn the music on. Yeah. There's a little like uh, you can a little vibrator mm-hmm. function you can push, and it kind of ro- that would work for anybody though. My wife wants one. I yeah, do she too. wants a full-size adult baby swing because it looks so comfortable. <laughs> Can't you see her little legs kicking yeah. out, out of sight? Which is great. What about just the church pew cot? Because oh. how many people have fallen asleep in church? They really you need just to, need some like person talking in a monotone. They need to update that design because those are very uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't matter how uncomfortable they are because we still somehow manage to fall asleep. You still fall asleep. How about, Terry, you could do the driving the car um, cot. Okay. Where the child's driving on a freeway simulator and they just fall asleep. Yeah, yeah. That'd, you that'd you be could great. do that one. It's <laughs> a good one. It's a really good one. See, there, we could make up more ideas and maybe better ideas. You don't think that's a good idea? Uh, sure. How much do you think it would cost? I don't have a price. Oh, they'll charge four hundred. Well, because it's a crib. Cribs yeah. are four or five hundred dollars, aren't they? Yeah. And there's an app. 
right? There's you got to get the so, app, but yeah. then you have to go get your own ambient sound, I guess. Right. So, yeah, it'll be five, six hundred bucks. Totally not worth it. I think we could do it a lot cheaper. Because your kid grows out of it, then what? Yeah, then what? The only way to make that work is to have more kids. Well, and then you know that kid, when he's going to be a horrible driver when he's a teenager. Right. He's going to always fall asleep. He's going to hear the engine noise, knock him straight out. I could record the noises for you at a fraction of the cost. See, that's what we got to do. Ah, good times. Hey, you know, as summer approaches, the Matt Townsend Show continues to lose student contributors to internships and jobs. This means no more House of Bows, no more Caitlin Thomas, pretty soon no more Leanna Tan's tangents. So in order to fill these vacancies, Jeff Simpson has started taking pitches from potential contributors. Jeff, do you have uh, one for us to screen today? Yeah, and I want you to keep an open mind. Um, of this is be- never a good way to start anything. I know. Okay, well— yeah, I, I heard this This guy came to me, and it sounds exactly like something that would show up on BYU Radio. Really? Yeah. So, so the, I want Don to listen to it because he may give it the green light as its own show. Forget oh, about its own segment. So it may he might, not be our segment. He might want it to be its own show, but here it is. Cool. Hello, and welcome to The Happy Garden with Bob Moss. Today, we're going to be talking about a practice that is absolutely necessary in regards to maintaining a healthy and happy garden. Now, many of you already know the benefits of talking and singing to your plants. I myself like to recite French poetry, but you are probably unfamiliar with plant therapy. Now, this involves not only talking to your plant, but more importantly, listening, in order to get to the root of the problem. I will now demonstrate on one of my favorite plants, the rhododendron. Her name is Patty. Patty, how are you today? Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Well, let's talk about the little incident from yesterday. When little Billy from across the street stomped on you repeatedly, how did that make you feel? I see. Well, can you think of anything you did to provoke such an attack? Ah, now you see, that may have been what set him off. Might I suggest we arrange a meeting so the two of you can work out this issue? Is that it? Is that it? Yeah. Hmm. Hold on. This, that, that's the pitch? That's the, the... The idea is to have a show with, like, a plant therapist? See, now, I thought this would be right up your alley because you could relate to, you know, just listening. Oh, yeah. Because we, we all think it's important to talk to our plants, but how about the listening part? They're hard to listen to, you know? They Some don't. people just don't put in the time, Matt. I don't know if I like Bob Moss. So Bob Moss, the happy garden. Hmm. Don't worry. We've we've got other options that we can choose from throughout the week. We'll, we'll so throughout the week we'll be testing other things. Yeah. So we don't have to go with Bob. No, but you know, I I I think Don's going to come de- running down the stairs any second, demanding that we turn this off. Um, Terry made a really good point. I think Terry said he heard this on another uh, channel. Yeah, there was another station network that was doing this type of thing. Yeah, really. It's kind of known for this type of thing. But listening, so they listen to their plants. Well, just sort of like boring 
pointless Hold segment. On, bo- so, don't say oh, whoa. Don't say boring. Oh, that was mean. He is listening because he knew we no, were going to be it not it's not boring. Let's just say it's 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 I like to just use the word interesting. <laughs> okay. That's more interesting. Pass, that's passive aggressive. Good job. Yeah. Anyway, we'll get back. We'll get back. Just just tell Bob we'll get back to him on that. Okay, fun times. Um, again, trying to make the show the best we can make it, and we can only do it, you know, I guess a lot of people would do this behind the scenes. These are free contributions. We're very transparent. We like to do these things in front of y'all because we want you to be a part of these. Free content. Okay, we'll have more with Bob Moss later. Um, but uh, let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to be talking about uh, survival of the kindness. Stick with us. Interesting insights into human life. Survival of the fittest is a term often used to describe how we should pursue success. It's the idea that we have to work alone and look out for ourselves in order to advance in our lives. In reality, it should be survival of the kindest. Cultivating a culture of compassion and support in our environment promotes more success than an individualistic view. This culture can also uh, lower blood pressure and depression, build resiliency towards stress, and boost self-esteem and morale. Here to talk with us more about the benefits of this compassionate approach is Dr. Chris Cook, a professor of political and social science at Western Connecticut State University and the author of the book, The Compassionate Achiever. Chris Cook, thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, Matt, thanks for having me on. And that word interesting that you guys were using before, that covers a wide gamut. Doesn't it? Totally. <laughs> the, the problem is I use it all the time. And so I, some people, sometimes it's a negative thing, but, you know, it's, it's just really interesting. Um, good to have you with us, Chris. Thanks for your time and, um, and this insight. I love – because, you know, Darwin, survival of the fittest, which I learned today wasn't his term um, – it, right. A lot of us think we've all evolved to just be aggressive and whoever's the strongest, most dominant wins. But you have a completely different take on the subject. Yeah, and it comes from everything from my, you know, playing football in high school to boot camp in the military to working on Wall Street now as a professor. That, you know, I had coaches and I had drill sergeants and I had bosses that literally said to me, Cook, you have to be ruthless. Right. In order to get ahead. Yeah. That I had to look out for myself. And what I found out in all those different jobs, they're insanely wrong, <laughs> not just wrong, insanely wrong. And I think that what we don't recognize is all the evidence is actually right in front of us. Right. Everything from the business world, um, for example, you know, Enron. Enron was a company that drove electricity into the ground so it could drive up its profits. Right. It was very right. selfish. Right. Now know that. Where are they? They're done. Yeah. Right. So, you know, and then you have businesses like Patagonia who give back to the community. And what I'm saying in, in, in compassionate achiever that compassion and success are linked and it's a strong link. And if you want to achieve success on a high level, and this is key for a sustainable amount of time, you're going to weave compassion, not self-interest, not selfishness into your approach to achieving whatever you want to achieve. And the evidence is literally all around us. But I'm not saying that 
that we're jerks might not win some battles. They will. Right. But the, the long term of it all is that they're not going to succeed. They're going to flame out. They're going to crash. Well, and especially if you believe that you have to be harsh and aggressive to win, you're going to always look for the examples that the work jerk, uh, you know, succeeded. But if you if you see the research and the data, I mean, we came from tribal groups where our ability to be social and safe socially really was our predictor of success. If you weren't allowed in the group because you were a jerk or if you were too domineering, the group would turn against you, wouldn't it? Right. You got to play well with others yeah. right, in order to survive. And, you know, Darwin actually said that. So we, we get taught in fifth grade and sixth grade Darwin's hypothesis on the origin of species. That was his hypothesis. But if you read all the rest of his research, Matt, what's really mind-blowing and really cool is he says, and especially in The Descent of Man, uh, toward the end of his career, right, he writes in chapters two, four, and five. Check this out, Matt. He says that the species that will move up the evolutionary ladder the most efficiently and the most effectively is the species who has the highest number of its members, and check this out, this is his word, that are sympathetic. Is hmm. that the Darwin that you were taught? No. Nope. No. Just go back to the original, and you'll see what Darwin was saying. And he literally was saying, just like as you were saying at the top of the, um, our segment here, it's survival of the kindest, not survival of selfish. And sympathetic meant, now means, has been kind of reinterpreted to mean empathic. Empathetic. Well, uh, yeah, it could be. Right? Um, Paul Ekman uh, from California, a psychologist, um, a really famous psychologist from California, actually you know, went through Darwin's work, and he found that Darwin used sympathy to mean three different things in three different passages of, of various books. Everything from uh, being uh, altruism, Empathy and compassion. Hmm. Wow. Which, by the way, doesn't seem like you're a brute. <laughs> right. Right. And, and think about it, too, Matt. We all fall, all of us, at some time or another. And if you're a jerk and you're cutting bridges and you're cutting ropes to other people by not helping them, by just letting them fall and not helping them up, what happens when you fall? Yeah. They need to be there to pick you up. No. Right. Right. No way. No way. So it's, it's, it's a logical, rational approach, actually, if you think about it. And, you know, I've heard so many times in so many different jobs that the, uh, the rational approach is the selfish approach. No, that's not. That's not. Adam Smith didn't even say that, by mm. the way, in The Wealth of Nations. Right. So, so the compassionate approach is what drives success. What is it about the compassionate side that is so, um, I guess, that, that is so enticing? Oh, man. There's so many reasons um, to look at compassion in terms as a key driving force for success. And I, I basically outlined four steps in, in the book. But and let's just start with what I think is the most important and what, as a society, we've forgotten how to do. And that's listen. The very first step on compassion. And, it, and what I mean listen, it's not just hearing. It's listening to learn, right? Because in our society, we tend to listen to reply, Right. We, we have to right. be listening so we can form an answer, not listening to understand. Right. And if we understood a lot of what people were going through, what our coworkers are going through, what our wives or husbands are going through. Right. We would have a better grasp, a holistic approach to the problems that are all around us. But instead, we just simply listen to reply because we think we know the answers. And my wife was my best 
teacher on that because when we were first married, man, I, I, I did the I did the guy thing. I wanted to solve all her problems, but all she wanted me to do was listen. So I had a, she taught me that in a, in a great way. So it, that's interesting because we, we we seem to have these breakdowns, whether it's in political, you know, the political world with society, workplaces and schools, economics, health, all these other issues, immigration, security, and. Reality is listening as one of your behaviors, one of the skills or steps could be injected into any part of these um, because it's so universal. Without a doubt. And there's in in the book, we cover different ways of how to practice that. So, you know, one one fun way that I do is that I listen to podcasts or shows that, you know, are come from an opposite or very different viewpoint that I have on whatever topic it is. And I make sure I listen all the way through. And I'm not listening to reply. I'm just literally li- taking notes. I do better when I have a pen in my hand to just listen. And so, you know, it's a lot of people, you know, can't listen to a certain politician that, that's up there because they just don't like, you know, who he or she is. And I think every person has some type of strength to their argument. And we just have to understand what what their what parts of their argument mean the most to them and what the strengths are of their argument. And then weave that together into ours and we can have a constructive dialogue rather than, you know, constant debates. Oh yeah, please. Um, In fact, one of the things um, before we get into all of your points, I I mean, I guess really one of the, it seems like compassion is soft, but it's also, it's incredibly efficient, right? And it works and it's kind of universal, but do you ever get people that are like, Ugh, that's just too soft or, yeah, it's because we, we saw with even President Trump and a lot of the politicians, it's about being strong and hard and, you know, taking America back kind of a mentality. Do people, for some reason, are they drawn to harsh over soft? Well, it's what we're taught, man. Uh, right now, it's, it's exactly what we're taught. So, yes, first off, I do get that. I actually had a mother in one state where I was talking to parents and teachers about compassion and compassion in the classroom, she came up to me after a talk and said, I don't want my son to learn compassion because I don't, I, I want him to, I don't want him to be picked on and I, I want him to take full advantage of everything that he can get. And I said, ma'am, actually compassion is strength. It's, compassion is not weakness. Anybody can get angry. And we've seen them all. You don't have to be smart to be angry. Right. You don't have to be strong to be angry. You just have to lose it. And that's the easiest thing to do in the world. It takes no strength to be selfish. It takes no strength to be angry. Um, and, and so one of the things that you, know, you, you think about is that when, it, when you think of compassion and, and softness, you know, I was thinking of water. Water is considered a soft element, right? And rock is considered a hard element. But Matt, doesn't water cut through rock? Yeah, right. It does. And it just it, takes time. Life. That's right. right. Compassion cuts through all the crud that may be around us because it also activates, you know, help that you didn't even know. By being nice to someone, someone else might be watching that you don't even know, right? And it, it gets back to Ralph Waldo Emerson for me. He talks about, Emerson talks about characters, what you do when you don't think anyone's looking. Well, there's been a lot of times in my life where I didn't think anyone was looking and they saw that I did the right thing and then they helped me out when I had a, maybe a roadblock or an obstacle in front of me or a dam or, or in our case right now, a rock in, in, in front of me. 
and the compassion that I showed to someone else because someone else was watching. I didn't do it for that reason, right? It was, it's, it was a byproduct of my action that someone else helped me. Right? And I don't think we give enough credence to, to, that, to that way of thinking. Imagine if we all just helped each other. Yeah. It would be a lot better world. Do you, I, I guess you just teach these behaviors, you teach these skills, uh, and do you believe that everyone can learn them? I mean, everyone meaning, you know, those that without major serious <laughs> issues. Um, but can, can everyone learn compassion? Yes. And yes, without a doubt. I mean, other than because the way their brains are set up, psychopaths. So, you know, psychopaths have a, a different different brain <clears throat> uh, structure than, than, than the rest of us do. Uh, and, yes, even everyone in your show, you guys, when I listen to you guys, you guys are hilarious, but, you know, teasing each other. Yes, you all can learn compassion. I'm sure you guys are going to have fun with that. Yeah, later we got to work on that. Um, <laughs> but, yes, and it goes, and Darwin believes that, and this is Darwin, man. I know, this is so amazing because everyone thinks Darwin was just so not teaching this, but he was. Right, and same with Jean-Jacques Rousseau, famous for the social contract. He said, and this is a quote by him, he said that we were all born, quote-unquote, with natural compassion. And we unlearn it, Matt, through what society teaches us. Think about it. On the playground, we allow kids, we teach kids to play a game called King of the Hill. King of the Hill, where you push each other down so that someone can be on top. And I went to try to explain realism in international politics to um, uh, 119 European students when I was teaching on a Fulbright over in the country of Estonia. And I was teaching realism, which is basically about that in international politics, about putting another country down so you can get on top. And it's actually a real theory. Um, and the, the class, one young lady, a Polish lady, uh, I'll never forget her. She was an amazing scholar. And she raised her hand. She goes, Dr. Cook, what's king of the hill? And I had explained to 119 wow. European students that in America, our kids play on the playground, a game where they knock each other down, and you should have saw their faces. And then I explained that we also play a game called Kill the Carrier, where you throw the ball <laughs> to someone and everyone right. tries to kill them, right? And, but they don't play those games over there. And she raised her hand after it was done. She goes, thank you, Dr. Cook. That explains so much about the United States. Uh, that, that killed me. Yeah. That crushed me. Yeah. Oh, but that's but yeah, what... <laughs> we can learn it. That's it. Well, I mean, and even just our last presidential race, I think, was King of the Hill, kill the carrier, right? I mean, it was... It, yeah. They're ugly. It's an, it's an ugly, so highly competitive that then we may learn our... Lose our ability, as Clouseau, I guess, talked about, our ability to... Um, uh, to be cooperative. Uh, let's take a break. We're speaking with Dr. Christopher Cook and uh, his book, The Compassionate Achiever, How Helping Others Fuels Success. Stick with us. We'll take a break. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends. Today we're talking about compassion and how uh, survival of the kindest may be a better, you know, mantra instead of survival of the fittest. And joining us is Dr. Chris Cook. 
He is a uh, professor of political and social science at Western Connecticut State University, author of the book The Compassionate Achiever, and is teaching us today about uh, how to how to actually become a more compassionate person. Dr. Cook, thank you again so much for being with us. Oh, thank you for having me on. Um, is when you think about um, the I guess the skills behind compassion and being a compassionate achiever. I know you've broken broken them down into four different, uh, you know, practical ways to get compassion into our lives, into our relationships. You've already talked about active listening and being a listener. What are some other skills we need to have? All right. So, kind of a simple way to remember this is think of the name Luca, L-U-C-A. In a lot of different languages, Luca, the name, means bringer of light. But also in science, it stands for the last universal common ancestor of all life here on Earth. So Luca, for me, had a bunch of really cool different meanings, and it just happened to fall into my my steps. Hmm. So the first is listening to learn. The second is understand the you, is uh, the you and Luca. Understand to know. Understand to know what you need to do to help someone, right? And then the um, third step is connect to capabilities. Uh, connect. Sometimes someone might come to you for help, but you may not have the capability to help them. So you, you should be able to connect them to either other people or other organizations that can help or address their problems. So connect to capabilities, so listen, understand, connect. And then the final one, which separates compassion from everything from empathy and sympathy, that's act, act to solve. So, Luca, listen, understand, connect, and act. Those are the four basic steps. And so I listen to learn, and I guess I guess the idea is um, we we could take any scenario. We could take the whole immigration issue, and if if you're a congressperson and you're dealing with the immigration issue, you could listen to learn, understand and know, connect to capabilities, and act to solve. Yes, every single aspect in life you can do this, and and we we break down you know those four steps every. Step has three chapters devoted to a practical ways and exercises to help everyone kind of improve their compassion muscle so they can improve their listening, they can improve their understanding, they can improve their connecting capabilities. Because that's, think about it, it's like networking in, in, in a different way, right? And then acting to solve, right? I even, acting includes the, um, the act of non-doing. And we can talk about that a little bit later too. It's yeah. like a paradox, but it isn't. Talk about um, understanding, because I think a lot of us assume we do understand. You know, we need a border wall. <laughs> I mean, people, they just we understand it. But there's so much complexity. There's so much information there. There might be places there can't be a wall. There might be places that it doesn't work. There might be places, I mean, just look at a wall. It's ugly. I mean, there's a lot of understanding that needs to be had. <laughs> yes, and and, you know, unfortunately, Matt, not – Every radio show and TV show is like yours, where you have a lot of different guests in terms of diverse opinions and ideas. Usually, you know, in this day and age, a lot of shows are kind of one-trick ponies. They're, they're one avenue. They're one way of thinking. And, you know, and people then tend to listen to that. And then they go online and they surround themselves with people who think the same way. So people think they have an understanding, but an understanding comes from uh, uh, knowing a diversity of ideas. And we've narrowed that. We, we have the tools to have a diversity of ideas, right? The internet. We have 
I don't know, 10,000 cable stations or whatever. I have Roku, right? It gives me a whole nother station. But what people tend to listen to are the ideas and stations that already promote their current way of thinking. We don't challenge our way of thinking all the time, right? We don't question our, our way of thinking enough. And I, I think you know, we can get into a whole other show about why that happens. Mm. Everything from school system, right? We fill in tests and don't question anymore to, you know, literally turning on, you know, whatever station that you are, if you're left or right. Um, and the understanding is about getting a holistic idea and a holistic knowing so that you're, you know, I, I founded a debate team on our campus and debaters, when they compete, have to debate the pro side, which some of them personally agree with, and then they have to debate the negative side, which they may not disagree with, which they may disagree yeah. with. And so what, what we found out, every time they take a side that they didn't think they liked, they found an argument that, like, wait a minute, ah, I can make my idea a little bit stronger by taking this. I never knew about it. I, hmm. I always get that. I never knew because they never had to look. So we don't understand. We, we have this one-trick pony of one avenue, one lane that we stay in. And a true understanding has a 360-degree perspective, not a one-degree perspective, not even a 15. Right? It takes 360 degrees, and we don't do that anymore. We tend to go to the stations that we already think like. How, how do we know? Is, is, there a, is there any insight you have as to how we know personally if we have a whole knowledge, a whole view? No, oh, man, that's the fun part. I don't think there is. It's the quest, Matt. Yeah. It's about constantly searching. Because I think if someone says that they have, you know, they already reached that holistic view and they're sitting on top of a mountain somewhere and we have to bow down to them, that scares the living daylight out. <laughs> right? Because no one, no one has that answer. Totally. If they do, I tell my students to run. You know, just because I have a PhD, you know, those initials behind my name, I tell my students, all a PhD means Matt, is that I compiled it high and deep. That's right. right? That, That's right. That doesn't mean I know everything. And I should be able to ask better questions, right? And every day be able to do that. And it's about the search for understanding. So uh, and I, I think, you know, there's only a few few you know, characters in, in history, from Jesus you know, to Buddha to you name it, that had that even came close to that, mm. to that understanding. Um, and, but it's the search. So true. That's the journey, right? And, and, and I guess to have the confidence that, you know, what you don't know, we'll just keep figuring it out. We got more tomorrow. Tomorrow's another day. We'll do it again. I also love this idea of connecting to others' capabilities. Really, so many people are just one networking connection away from being able to take it to a whole new level. I mean, I, like I was as I read your bio, I sit there and I think of everything you've done plus a Fulbright, and I'm going to bet uh, those things happen not just because you're smart and amazing, but because you also had the ability to connect to the right people. Yeah, and you know, someone asked me, you know, a, a question we tend to get every every so often: what are your strengths and what are your weaknesses? And I, I told them, sit down because the list of weaknesses is long. I said, but my strength, I can tell you right off the top of my head, it's my friends. Those are, that's my, those are my strengths. The people I surround myself with, um, they're positive. They're uplifting, always looking for uh, answers and, and better questions like E.E. Cummings, right? And, and my neighbor, right? It, we, we've got so many cool people that we can surround ourselves with 
And they are sometimes our greatest strengths. And I, I don't think we give credit to that either. No. And I mean, and again, this is why it, you, you have more power in your kindness because you build a stronger network of people around you. And then you yeah, can re- and, you can pull on all of them. Right. And even they come to you even when you don't ask because they see something going on or they notice something and then they'll jump in. I can't tell you how many times that's happened. And I, you know, when I hear somebody say that, you know, they got to where they are all by themselves. That is, it's like someone saying to me, you know, I got the perfect family. No, no. We all have issues, man. Some of us have volumes more than issues, but we all have them. We all have problems. And, and so it's getting through those that, that, that are sometimes they, they can take you down. But when you're surrounded by a network of, of people who, you care about. They tend, for the most part, I'm not going to say it happens all the time, they tend to care for you, too, even when you don't expect it to happen. Yeah, that's powerful. Uh, and last, the last point is just action, right? We got to take action towards a solution, because. but it seems like maybe the act, action's easier to take because you're better informed, because you've listened, you understand, you're connected to the right people, then all you got to do is act on it. Right. So by listening, understanding and connecting, right, hopefully you're not creating new problems because a lot of times, you know, I was in government for a while. Sometimes the steps you take create more problems than they actually solve. Right. So by listening and understanding and connecting, hopefully, yeah, you minimize that that chance. But this also separates compassion from empathy. Right. And because empathy is just feeling the same, having the same feeling as someone else. Compassion has two aspects to it. Right. It's this understanding about a problem and then doing something about it, addressing it. And here, it's it, and a non-doing can actually be helpful in, in this. So, and, you know, non-doing is not the same as doing nothing. It's, and let me just give you an example of that. One of my, I have three little dudes, I have three boys, and one of them had a serious medical condition, and his voice for a few months sounded like Darth Vader. <laughs> raspy and yeah. he had a hard time breathing and he was going back after extended stay in the hospital uh, to the class and I wanted to kind of set up the class <laughs> you know my, my, my bio I was a counterintelligence agent and I wanted to like get it all squared away and he, he goes dad I know you want to do something he goes but let me do it and it was the hardest thing as a dad <laughs> to not step in and make sure my son wasn't going to get picked on but the teachers told me he got up in front of the class and said he's coming back, and, and he made a Darth Vader joke, and it <laughs> settled everything down. So my act of non-doing actually helped my son more than by me doing something, because now it also built his self-confidence, right? Something that you hope to teach, but really can only be done by the person who, who, who needs it built. And so it's those acts of non-doing sometimes, right? The doctor who prescribes no medication but walking around in, in nature, right? Sometimes those are the best things uh, to move forward. Absolutely. Well, Chris, great stuff. Um, I can't uh, recommend it more. Thank you for your time, and thank you for being with us. Uh, Dr. Chris Cook is his name. The Compassionate Achiever is the book, How Helping Others Fuels Success. Go check out his website as well, chriscook.com. Cook is spelled K-U-K-K, Cook, chriscook.com. Uh, boy, good to good to have such talent um, uh, and and just insight that we can draw upon. We will take a break, come back, wrap up this uh, second hour of the show. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. 
Welcome back. Drop it. I've got to wait for the drop, don't I? It's just so... I'm just chomping at the bit to get in there. You little music mixer. Hey, as uh, we like to do, um, a little empty news for you. Not all the news is critical to know, but some of it, um, you know, it's it's kind of fun. Uh, you might want to know this. The Spanish government admits that it can't defend against a zombie apocalypse. Really? That's yeah. not good news. I mean, the great thing is Spain, I think, is the first government to admit that. Hmm. The reality is, is I'm, I'm sure most governments cannot uh, defend against the zombie apocalypse. Um, the Spanish government has said it is incapable of defending the country against a zombie apocalypse in what must go down as one of the most bizarre and pointless exchanges in political history. The government said it, is, it hasn't formulated any concrete plans to deal with the dawn of the dead, partly because it says it doubts that they're ever would be enough zombies to actually trigger such an apocalypse. So they're they're conceding that there probably would be some zombies, but just not enough. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, like, not enough to trigger an apocalypse. I wonder what that number is. That's the tough part, yeah, is knowing the, what that number is. I think it's the tipping point, right? It's, mm. the, it's the zombie tipping point between just, hey, a weird infestation of zombies versus a full-blown apocalypse. Yeah. Yeah. There's like, this guy likes to lick frogs, <laughs> but he might not be a zombie. Right. Yeah. He's just a frog licker. Uh, the somewhat flippant remarks were made in response to an equally flippant question in the Spanish Congress by Senator Charles Mulet, who had asked the government what sort of plans it had in place to deal with the mass uprising from beyond the grave. Mulet asked the question as a form of protest at what he considered the poor quality of written responses given by the Spanish government to its opposition in the Senate. In responding to the question, the government reverted to Spain's Royal Academy Dictionary to search for the definition of the word zombie and apocalypse. You know, you got to be thorough, and we right. got to define our terms. What are we fighting about here? For the latter, it found two definitions. Apocalypse means the end of the world and a catastrophic situation. The government said that while there are plans in place to deal with a catastrophic situation, there is little point to putting plans in place for the end of the world, such as an event that is likely to uh, never actually happen. So if you're a zombie and you're listening, the the Spanish government is not prepared, so you may want to strike there first. Right. I mean, what, are you just going to tip your hand, Spain? That was foolish. That was, yeah, that was, a, that's what we call a zombie, you know, foot in the door. Zombie boo-boo. Zomboo-boo. Yeah, those are bad. Those are bad. Hey, 14 uh, animals, including a llama and a pony, escaped from a petting zoo in Cologne, Germany on Tuesday, leading to a mad scramble by officers and zoo workers to round them all up. The animals had slipped through a hole in the fence in their enclosure at the petting zoo and made a run for it, according to zoo officials. The escapees included nine sheep, two donkeys, one llama, a pony, and a dwarf bull. Ooh, those are the ones you got to watch out those for. Those are the little bulls, and they aren't easy to catch. And it was apparently every animal for itself as they all ran in different directions. The llama was spotted in a park, while the pony and the donkeys made it uh, uh, into someone's backyard. Other animals wandered onto the playground. It took seven police officers and fifteen um, and a fifteen-head search team from the petting zoo to finally round up the rowdy deserters. 
None Sounds of them were harmed. Epic. It was epic. Epic. So uh, you know, watch out for the watch out for zombies and for the animals from the petting zoo. By the way, I never heard if the dwarf bull was ever found. Hmm. Mm. Running of the dwarf bulls on TLC. He should team up with the dwarf planet Pluto. They should have their own show. Yeah, they should. It's a great show. That'd be great. Hey, uh, that's the that's the show. We'll take a break. We'll be back next hour. More interesting insights into how to be a better you. Stick with us. <laughs> 